This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 110. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lom Ramayasha, and today we have a very special interview for your folks. We are interviewing the CEO of Iridori Comics. They are a publisher that is known for licensing and translating doujinshi and have done several erotic doujinshis through Faku, but we are talking with Own Takashi today about his new Iridori Aqua line, which publishes non-erotic doujinshi. And so we go into that a little bit with Own, but we also really go into Own's experiences as a fan and how he got into the industry and some of the very interesting stories he had living in Japan and kind of the interesting roundabout way that he ended up working in the industry as a translator. So it's a, a really fascinating interview and I am really looking forward to you guys listening to it. But we first got a couple bits of news to talk about in our first news report of 2020 rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, before we get into news, uh, I do just want to mention real quick that by the time you guys are listening to this, over at our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, uh, as far as our newest bonus podcast is concerned, uh, again, at the $5 tier in particular, uh, when you sign up for that, you are guaranteed uh, at least one monthly bonus podcast at the end of every month. And for the end of January... Uh, we invited on Stefan Koza once again, translator of Jujutsu Kaisen and translator of what we talked about on this bonus podcast, uh, the comic from Kazuki Takahashi, for those who may not know, is also the author of uh, such hits as Yu-Gi-Oh! And uh, yeah, we basically had Stefan on to talk about the comic uh, since uh, I-, I finally had the chance to read it. It was uh it was something that came out in Shota Jump for the 50th anniversary back at the end of uh 2018 that uh we had been wanting to podcast about for a while just to kind of talk about our thoughts on it and we just never really had the chance to until until about a month ago. So uh yeah, that is that is now up on the Patreon and uh yeah, uh if you are interested in listening to that, definitely go uh subscribe to our $5 tier and not only will you get access to that podcast but so many other uh uh, bonus podcasts that we have uh, recorded all throughout the past uh, almost year that we've been on patreon so far uh we got a lot of different bonus podcasts such as uh different episodes of at movies uh really cool uh manga fight where uh uh lum and their friends argue over monster girls (laughs) uh all all sorts of different varied podcasts and whatnot as well as a mini series where we, uh, where myself and Grant the Thief over at Twitter talk about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, specifically uh, Phantom Blood. For now, uh, we'll definitely be getting back to other JoJo's parts uh, at a later date. But speaking of uh, new book club uh, mini series, you would definitely want to subscribe to our Patreon to hear myself at the end of that last podcast announce what we're going to be doing for our next Manga Mavericks book club read through. I won't say here, you know, if, if you're a patron, you already know what's coming up. And, uh, you know, if, if you're not already a patron, we'll, we'll, we'll bring that up at a, on a later podcast. Uh, you'll, you'll see when the time comes. Let's just say the announcement's a galaction explosion of awesomeness. Oh, yes, for sure. 
Okay, but enough plugging our Patreon. Again, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. That's the best way to support us. But for now, uh, we're gonna now we're gonna get into news. And uh we have the newest uh monthly book scan list, uh at least at the time of this recording, the list from December. And again, I'm just gonna get out of the way. A lot of my hero academia, um, more than half the list, same old, same old, uh, same shit, different day. Um <laughs> So, uh, because at, uh, let's see, so we have one, two, three, four, uh, five, there six, seven, eight. eight, yes, eight volumes of My Hero Academia out of the 12 manga volumes on this list of the top 20 adult graphic novels list for December. Yep, that's 75% of all the manga on the list, <laughs> and f- about 40% of all the comics in the top 20 total. Oh boy, but for for those of the for those of you who are curious specifically about which volumes are on this list, uh volume 1 ranked at number 3, volume 22, which I believe is the newest volume right now, mm-hmm. is ranked at number 4, with volume 2 ranked at number 5, volume 3 ranked at number 6, uh with volume 4 ranked at number 11, volume 5 ranked at number 17, volume 21 ranked at number 19. And serendipitously, volume 20 ranked at number 20. Mm-hmm. Love to see it. Yeah. I'm going to be shocked when My Hero Academia is suddenly not on this list anymore. It's going to be, it's going to be quite, it's going to, it's, it's going to be the day when that happens, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So it's doing amazingly well. Not much else to say there. Um, so let's just move on to the next thing on the list. Uh, which is volume 18 of One Punch Man at number seven on the list. And then we have uh, Junji Ito's No Longer Human hardcover edition, uh, ranked at number 10, uh, which I believe is the... Uh, it's an adaption of the Osamu Dazai story. Yeah, yeah, I was. that's what I was going to say right there. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. I'm, I'm only familiar with Osamu Dazai through, uh, through Bungo Stray Dogs. I've never actually yeah. read the man's uh, literary work. <laughs> Might as well give it a try through Junji Ito, of all places. And then, so, at number 15, we have, once again, Volume 1 of Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba. I can see that a lot of people are still getting into Demon Slayer, presumably. I'm surprised Demon Slayer Fever isn't at the same level of intensity as it is in Japan, where it's, like, just selling out, and they're printing so many more copies of it, because so many people are ravenously buying it. I wonder when that level of Demon Slayer Mania is going to come over here, and we'll see Demon Slayer competing with MHA for spots on this list. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm... I am not expecting anywhere near the fervor in Japan, but I mean, at the very least, I would have expected like another volume on the list, like like we had last time. But I don't know. I guess we'll have to see once we finally get that train arc movie over here. Maybe maybe maybe, maybe that'll raise some awareness for Demon Slayer that month, and we'll see we'll see like I don't know, maybe double the Demon Slayer we've seen on this list. So at least four volumes. <laughs> I don't know, we'll have to see. Uh, but last but not least, we have Volume 7 of Dragon Ball Super, ranked at number 16. I'm pretty sure this is still in the middle of the Tournament of Power, I want to say. Yeah, it should be. Mm. But, uh, yeah, no, that that's really that's really about it for the list. I mean, 
all the popular choices, all from Viz Media, basically. Yeah. So again, not 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 much else to add there. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what January's list will look like. It it, it is interesting to see that like because I because I think on the last podcast uh, we recorded we we talked about how like volume one of my Hero Academia ranked so highly on uh on on the New York Times list in particular, and I don't know. It, it's it's just it's just so interesting to me that like. The first, you always see the first four volumes of My Hero Academia sell so well. And again, that leads me to believe that people are still getting into this thing. And that's, that's kind of insane to me. Yeah. I'm just surprised that not everybody is already into My Hero Academia. You still have people who are, who haven't read this thing yet. Yeah. I mean, there are millions of people in the country, I suppose. So in general, manga and anime are niche. So, like, just imagine, like, the potential which MHA has if it expands beyond, like, the community of anime and manga fans in the U.S. and, like, goes to just pretty much everyone who consumes entertainment. Oh, yeah. That, uh, sky's the limit in terms of, like, how much higher MHA can continue to soar. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, but I, I think I think we've uh, said all we can about uh, the book scan list for now. Uh, and I think we should move on to some serialization news. And uh, Lum, I'm going to let you take care of literally all of these pieces of news since I think you're more familiar with a lot of these uh, series than I am. Sure. First, we'll start off with a fresh piece of news that uh, just happened at the time of this recording. Uh-oh, breaking that news. Fudabasha has announced in their monthly action magazine in their March issue that the publisher is opening a web action manga website at the end of February, which will feature many prominent series from the magazine, as well as original works. And these will include the likes of Orange, In This Corner of the World, Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, My Brother's Husband, Suzuki-sensei, Even If You Don't Do It. And it will also include works by Nagata Kabi, Ken Wakai, and many other uh, very notable creators. So definitely something to keep an eye on as a new digital manga reading website has opened up in Japan and perhaps the original works that launch on this website may be licensed and brought over in the future as well. So very interesting stuff. But now we're going to get into some more serialization stories in terms of things that will be ending. And there are a lot of things that are announced to be ending very soon. The first of which we'll talk about is the Kino's Journey manga, which debuted in Monthly Comic to Geki Dayo back in May 2017. And that ended in the February 2020 issue of Katakawa's Monthly Comic to Geki Dayo magazine, uh, the time of this recording, which is back in December. So I've been reading the Kino's Journey manga. We've got a review up on an allcomic.com. It's a pretty good adaptation of the story and adapts some really interesting stories so i'll be curious to see on what note it ends what story it chooses to end on that series has been published over here by vertical which we'll have to talk about vertical later on in the show but you can currently get up to the first four volumes of that manga over here so, yeah, and I think the fifth volume will probably be the last one. So we'll have to look forward to that coming out in the near future as well. A big, big announcement on the official Twitter account 
of uh, Kadansha's Bizatsu Shonen magazine was a drawing by Hajime Iziyama, the creator of Attack on Titan, which had text on it that read, The completion of this serialization, and Kadansha tagged the image with the words 2020 aspirations at magazine year-end parties. So... Basically, what everyone's been getting for this is that Hajime Izayama doesn't intend to end Attack on Titan this year, and based on where events are in the story of Attack on Titan, that seems quite plausible. The story post a time skip, in mine and a lot of others' opinions, has not been very great in terms of the oh, uh, oh, man. direction of Aaron's character arc and what he plans to do, but we will see just on what note it ends on. All I will say is that I hope Aaron does not succeed in his plan, and I will leave it at that. That would be a whole lot of yikes. Oh, man. It sounds like Aaron just becomes a Nazi. <laughs> That's my observation, not seeing anything past, like, the end of the first you season of Attack on Titan. Are not wrong. Oh no! Honestly, I was I was kind of half <laughs> joking too. Ah man, Attack on Titan's pretty fucking wild, huh? Yeah, I should have seen it coming. I guess from all the subtext of nationalism from even very early on. But uh, well, I can't wait to read this dumb series when it ends. We'll it's see. It's gonna be a ride. Yeah. We will see what note it actually ends on, but Fair enough. where things have been have not been very promising. Another series that is entering its endgame is Spotless Love, which is a Shonen Jump Plus series that you can read currently on Manga Plus. It has started its final arc, and I don't know how long that final arc will run, but we are nearing the end of that series too, so it's a pretty short series, so that was a good time to catch up on it and like uh, be ready for its uh, final couple chapters. I'm, I'm double-checking this, but I want to say the entirety of that series is available to read for free on Marvel Plus. That indeed it is. All, every chapter of Spotless Love. So you can just head over onto Manga Plus right now and I read it all up. And there are not too many chapters. It's only a little more than 21 chapters. So you can get through it fairly quickly as well. I think it comes out like every other week or is, or is it a weekly series? I believe it's every other week or not even that regular sometimes because it does, I think, well, no, looking at the dates, it does seem to come out every week. Sometimes, though, there isn't a chapter, but just an illustration. It looks like the last chapter didn't come out until, like, last year in December, on December 9th, so. Yeah, I mean, basically, the next chapter that you would read on Manga Plus would be, like, the start of this last arc, I think. Okay. At the time of this recording. But another series with the end of side is... B-Stars, according to Paro Itagaki's author's note in the 8th issue of the of Akira Shodin's Weekly Shonen Champion magazine, the 2020 edition, is like, yeah, basically B-Stars is entering the endgame. She has an ending in mind for it. She's gonna work on it with everything she has until the end. And so B-Stars is a series that, of course, is not... Uh, doesn't have simul pubs, so I'm not 
current on like what is happening right now, but from what I had heard from just hearsay, it didn't seem like there was a, it was really in an endgame territory from what I'd been hearing, like discussion of like recent chapters and the focus of those chapters. But perhaps we are going to see like it heading towards like a very firm conclusion very, very soon. But I am really loving reading Beastars and enjoying the ride and will continue to follow the Viz release of the series. And uh, I'm very excited to even watch the anime when it hits on Netflix later in the March. So Beastars is good manga. Sad to hear that it'll be ending soon, but here's hoping it ends on a real high note. It's so weird because like... Like I, I, I just got into this thing, and and now it's already on its way out. Like, don't leave my life just yet. You can't do that to me, B stars. Luckily, there are a lot of volumes of B stars, and we will hopefully continue to be able to read the series through the bi-monthly releases from Viz Media through at least twenty twenty two, I think. And I guess the anime is getting another season. That that I was not aware of. Yeah, that sounds. Good. We'll see how much story that second season will cover, too. From what I had heard, it seemed like the first season covered six volumes worth of content, and B Stars oh, wow. is a little over 17 volumes right now, so hmm. we'll see uh, how much more of the stories the second season will get through. Hmm, okay, well, can't wait for that. Enough talk about all these series that are ending. Now let's talk about a new manga to look forward to. And in the second issue of Shigakukan's Big Comic Superior magazine, they reveal that they're launching eight new manga in the future. And one of them is a new manga by Taiyo Matsumoto, famously of Tekong King Street and Cats of Louvre and most especially Ping Pong fame. Oh, wow. So, a new Taiyo Matsumoto manga is something to look forward to that will be coming out in spring 2020. It is called Mukashi no Hanashi, or Old Tales. And the story will be written by Issei Ifuku, and it will tell the stories of those without names that have been buried by its history, so... Very, very interesting premise, and anything by Taiyo Matsumoto is definitely something to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm, that, that, that does sound pretty interesting. Judging from the from the ad in the magazine amongst uh, all the other uh, series being coming up in this magazine, I wonder if all those, of, of all these stories are going to be told by this cat. Mm-hmm. If, if it, maybe, maybe it's just, it's just going to be a guy listening to a cat talk about who actually shot jfk or something i don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know some, some, something weird like that i don't know I, I like the idea of learning about stuff that happened outside of you know your history textbooks and whatnot it's just just uh, conceptually this sounds really interesting it sounds sounds like it'll be maybe like an anthology kind of thing maybe yeah it sounds like there'll be a different focus in every chapter it'll focus on a whole lot of different stories about forgotten people mm. Yeah, I would read that. But now we'll head into some licensing news. Yes, yes. So first to start off with, uh, Kodansha Comics has uh, has a new page on their website, which we will be linking in the show notes, in which it's it's basically just a guide to all their cyberpubs. Uh, basically what they're what they're publishing, 
what ch- uh, what chapters they're all at, uh, and where you can read them. For example, uh, they have Domestic Girlfriend on here listed at uh, 259 chapters with links to where you can read it on sites such as uh, Comixology, Crunchyroll, and Bookwalker. Uh, and it even gives you the latest uh, the latest volumes that they're at, too, uh, which is pretty cool. And so, uh, yeah, uh, basically, you can, uh, you can go here and uh, see what they're publishing uh, currently and whatnot. Uh, I think this will be a very useful guide because uh, I will be honest. There are some times where I cannot keep track of like where Kadancha has all their stuff, mm-hmm. and you know I'm always wondering, you know, where I can find their stuff and whatnot. And so this will this will definitely be very helpful. And uh, yeah, uh, along along with this, uh, speaking of Kadancha, uh, they do have a new Cybel Pub now coming out every month. Uh, we mentioned, I believe, on the last episode of the podcast about a new series from Ryo Sumiyoshi uh, that was uh, going to be published in Japan with the uh, with the goal of having it basically simul uh, published worldwide in different languages, especially in English. And now we're ba- we basically have confirmation that Kodansha is going to be simul publishing this manga in particular, every month under under the name of Ashidaka, the Iron Hero. Uh, right now, you can read uh, chapters of this every month as they're released on Comixology for about $1.99 per chapter, assumedly. Um, at least that's that's what the that's the price of the first chapter anyway, which I believe is about 60 pages. So, yeah, that's that's not a bad price for 60 pages at all. My only thing is, I I wish it were maybe available on Crunchyroll or something, or at least somewhere free, just because, like, not that I don't mind paying for, you know, uh, pub chapters, but it's one of those things, again, like with uh, when, when we first read To Your Eternity, and when that was being published through Comixology, you know, as much as I don't mind paying for individual chapters, I also... I also wonder if maybe it'd be more cost effective if I just wait for the volumes to come out eventually, you know? So uh that's just mm-hmm. my thing personally. But, you know, at the very least, I would like to purchase the first chapter and maybe, you know, talk about it on the next episode, along with a lot of other cyber pubs we need to talk about eventually. So hopefully expect some talk on Ashidaka next episode, but uh just wanted to let you guys know that it is, that that is officially being Cybel published, and uh, again, we'll leave links to Kadancha's Cybel publishing guide in the show notes. And then next up, we're going to be talking about Manga Planet a little bit. Uh, we mentioned about an episode or two ago at this point about Manga Planet and how it's basically akin to Futakia and how it's another manga subscription service. You pay six ninety nine a month and you get access to all sorts of different manga. And back about a month or two ago at this point, they added a whole bunch of new titles to their service, a lot of which seem to be like manga adaptations of different like HP Lovecraft works. So that's kind of interesting. We're not going to go over every single title, but... Uh, you know, I just thought it'd be worth mentioning that, uh, you know, they've, they've been adding new titles to their service. I've seen them tweeted out from the Manga Planted uh, Twitter account, and they always look really interesting. I uh, I need to get a subscription to that at some point when I have the uh, extra money here. And so, yeah, just thought that might be worth uh, 
pointing out for you guys. And then uh, this is interesting. So we haven't had the chance to talk about this yet, but you know, my, my anime list has been adding all sorts of, you know, different features over the, over the past couple of years now where, you know, they've basically, you know, gone legitimate at this point in that. And I mean, they, they've always like linked to, you know, different like uh, simulcasts and stuff for, for their anime that they list and whatnot, which is always cool. But, you know, they've also gone into basically opening up like their own manga store where you can buy manga from them directly, I think. Or at the very least, they'll they'll link to like where, where you can buy manga from their different listings and whatnot. Uh, but now my anime list is hosting free manga on their website. And uh, we'll leave a link to uh, that page also in the show notes for people who... Uh, who may have a my anime list account and want to check those out? It's a different mix of titles from other publishers. Like they have some Kodansha properties here. Like they they just have chapters of like Spiral Down the Runway and Drifting Dragons and uh, I uh, I don't think the Tenth Prism is a um, is a Kodansha license. I know that's a Crunchyroll uh, thing though, along with uh, Insufficient Direction and King's Game, I believe. Uh, they they have all sorts of stuff from again Kodansha and uh, Harley Quinn and stuff th- stuff on Crunchyroll and whatnot. They even have manga from currently running anime uh, adaptations of stuff like uh, Somari and the uh, Guardian of the Forest in slash Spectre. I think that's how you pronounce that. And uh, uh, what was it here? The Island of Giant Insects and whatnot. So so even some current titles as well, as far as like the an- the new anime season goes. Uh, you can even read free chapters of Baki the Grappler uh, from Media Doe, which I believe they have like 20 chapters on there that you, can re- that you can read for free if you have an account. And just kind of exploring through the website here. So I believe what they're doing is they're basically adding a new chapter for each of these series every week. But I don't know if it's one of those things where it's like eventually like you know, these chapters will, like, expire, or if they plan yeah, on, like, filling out... Yeah, there are expiration out. dates on some of these, I think. I wasn't sure if they were maybe uploading chapters of these manga titles, like, in the hopes of, like, filling out complete sections of them, kind of like with, like, Manga Plus or whatnot, because uh, there, there are sections for some of these titles where, basically, you can read, like a couple, like, a couple free chapters, and then they'll link you to where you could buy the rest of it or whatever. Um, which is, I'm, ass- I'm assuming what they're going to do for some of these. Again, for stuff like Baki the Grappler, they just have, like, multiple chapters of, like, certain series up on here. But no, yeah, I mean, uh, again, if any of these titles sound interesting to you, I-, I didn't even list everything that they have up on here. They they definitely have interesting selection to choose from. So, again, we'll leave a link for uh, anyone who wants to check any of these mm-hmm. out in the show notes. And then uh, our next piece of uh, licensing news here is really interesting because it has to do with a license that's both English and French coming from French publisher Akata that basically started uh, as, as early as the beginning of this January started basically simul publishing a new work from Kuro Nohara entitled Staring at Your Back, or Kimi no Senaka, uh, which began publishing digitally at the beginning of uh, January 16th, it seems. Uh, And this will be an eight-chapter manga uh, available digitally in both French and English. And as far as a print release goes, they're releasing it in print in French. Uh, No plans so far, it seems, to 
uh, release this in print in English, but maybe down the line. And so, yeah, I think at the time of this recording, you can buy both Chapter Zero and Chapter One uh, for 99 cents over on Amazon through Kindle. And you can also buy it through places such as the iBook Store and Google Play and other digital outlets and whatnot. And uh, I haven't had the chance to actually, like, go through the synopsis of the series, but, like, from what I could tell, it is a, uh, it isn't, it's an LGBT title, kind of along the same lines of something like uh, My Brother's Husband, I think. I forget where. I think it was Manga Mogura or, so- or someone... Uh, that was kind of talking about, you know, Kuro Nohara as uh, in the same vein as uh, as uh, Gengoro Tagame, who, you know, as as someone who often writes uh, works in in that vein there, and uh, I find that really interesting. So, um, you know, I'll definitely be checking this out at some point, uh, Lum. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this at all. Yeah, I mean, the art looks interesting and. You know, I'm definitely all for more LGBTQ manga being released, and especially simul-published or released in this format is really cool. So I'd definitely be interested in reading the entire story, and yeah, I'd look forward to it. All right, uh, this is definitely going to be on my list. Definitely want to check this out. And now we're going to move on to some Seven Seas licenses. And some of these we can go through kind of quickly because, uh, first off, Seven Seas uh, licensed back in December basically a collection of short stories from various creators that have to do with Maiden Maiden Abyss in particular. So, uh, yeah, they're going to be releasing a Maiden Abyss anthology series, which will be coming out in print and digital on September 29th. And so, yeah, I mean, if if you are a fan of of Maiden Abyss and... You want to explore more of the world in that series. It's going to feature about uh, 15 short stories by various different creators. Uh, So that's really cool. I have to be honest, seeing all the fervor about this new Made in the Abyss movie really makes me want to get into that series. Um, I've heard I've heard good things about it. It's definitely on my list. But like lately, I've just I've just had this voice in the back of my head telling me, like, now's the time. Now's the time to get into (laughs) it. Get into it now. Um. (laughs) It's, uh, it's a little voice in my head telling me when, when when's the right time to get into manga. That happens to me sometimes. Anyway, moving on. So um, Seven Seas also uh, announced that they're going to be uh, releasing two new spinoff manga for the Ancient Magus Bride. The first of which being the Ancient Magus Bride, um, Psalm 75, Lightning Jack, and the Fairy Incident, as well as the Ancient Magus Bride, Psalm 108, Magician Blue. Um, again, if you are a fan of uh, the Ancient Magus Bride already, those um, those may be of interest to you. But just to kind of go over these other titles here, we have Who Says Warriors Can't Be Babes from author Taijiro, in which essentially, you know, you, you, you have the hero on his mission here. It's, 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 it's a typical, like, Dragon Quest RPG kind of series, it seems like, where you have this girl who has a massive crush on the hero, and so she's basically inspired to keep training until she is the strongest fighter alive. But essentially, she goes so far that uh, you know she she becomes she becomes so strong that like that basically the hero of the story sees her as sort of a rival instead of a love interest. Well, she sees her as a juggernaut instead of a love interest. So it doesn't really 
see her as a love interest at all, basically. It's ba- this is basically like the fantasy version of Tomo-chan as a girl, from what the synopsis sounds like. In that, like, the girl wants to be in a relationship with the guy, but the guy does not see her romantically or even sexually. He just treats her like, oh, you're like a bro. That's basically the idea behind this, it seems. Okay, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. And so, uh, Seven Seas will be releasing the first volume of this digitally ended print on July 21st, 2020. And then next we have The Gym Teacher and School Nurse Are Dating from author Pikachu Oi, in which, you know, that, 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 like, the, the title's pretty self-explanatory, but from, from the summary, the, the summary makes it sound like, you know, you have these two, uh, you know, employees at the school, the gym teacher and the nurse, they're basically in a relationship, and, you know, all their co-workers and even the students at the school are all basically, they're all for it, like, they're all very supportive. Which I think is really interesting, considering, and this is this this was just me kind of thinking, but like I don't know, I, I just find that really interesting, considering how like, and and maybe this will be covered in this as well, but like I, I couldn't help but feel like, oh well, if the students and teachers or whatever found out that basically two other teachers were dating and they were gay or whatever, that like that would spur a lot of like I don't know, stupid like gossip or rumors or whatever. But I don't know. It, th- this sounds like the kind of series that's you know more wholesome than that uh, and whatnot, which which I think is good. Yeah. You know, it it just it sounds cute. And so Seven Seas will be releasing the first volume of that digitally ended print on September twenty second, twenty twenty. And then uh, next up we have Kingdom of Z uh, from authors uh, Saizo Har- Harawada uh, and Ron Watanuki, who is the illustrator. And essentially, from the summary, to me, it's it's another zombie manga uh, where this guy is basically trying to survive, and he is basically rescued uh, by probably two of the most beautiful girls at his high school, and, uh, and the series kind of goes from there. The first thing that came to my mind was High School of the Dead, except I don't know for sure how, uh, how action-filled and exciting the series is compared to that, something like that. But you know, it it's it sounds interesting enough, you know, if you're into zombie stories, this uh this might be your cup of tea. Again, first volume will be coming out digitally and in print on July 14th, 2020. Uh and then we have Buck Naked and Another World, which it is what it Yes, thank you. It's a series of light novels from uh from author uh, Madoka Kotani and illustrator Mochi Usa. And it's basically what it sounds like. You have this ordinary Japanese man catapulted headfirst into a fantasy world where he's basically just naked and he doesn't have any clothes. And he, I guess, just lives like that? I don't know. It's I don't understand why he doesn't just get clothes. Because other people in this world, at least according to this cover art, wear clothes. So even if he doesn't have any clothes when he comes into the world. He can just, like, get some. Someone can gift them to him. He can buy some. So I'm not sure why he needs to be naked. Like, this is such a flimsy premise. It's, like, (laughs) basically just a porn premise. It's just an excuse for the character to have sex. Or something. I don't know. Is this, like, an actual porn book? Or is it just, like, some... I mean, he's obviously gonna have that skeevy bent to it like based on the cover maybe maybe in this world maybe in this fantasy world uh his eight pack is so is so like magical that like maybe every time he puts on clothes they 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 just burst 
He he physically cannot put on clothes. See, that would that would I'm sure well, that's probably the girls on the cover seem to be into it, I guess. I'm sure that's not the case, but like what I just said there would already be is already way more interesting than like what this is giving me. Yeah, I there has to be a good reason why he can't wear clothes and then even beyond that, like what is the series going to do? What why is it interesting that he's you know, buck naked in this world. What is he going to do? Like, the premise basically seems, oh, this is a porn premise. So, I don't know. It'd be funny if, like, he were just naked and, like, there was, like, just no sex in this at all. Yeah. I, uh, have very little confidence that it's going to go in that direction based on the cover, though. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. So... If you're into Naked Isekai, uh, Seven Seas will be releasing the first volume of this as well on July 21st, 2020, and uh, digitally at an earlier date to be announced. So that's about it for Seven Seas stuff, and not a lot that like I'm personally interested in, I can say. Um, I don't know. Anything stick out to you in particular, Lum? Not terribly. I mean, I guess the fantasy one... Could be fun. Like, the art is appealing, at least, to me. Alright, then. Well, we'll just move on to a cross-infinite world uh, license, uh, in which we have uh, the Misfortune Devouring Witch is actually a vampire? From Kiro Himawari and uh, Kibi Uda. In which this seems to be a, uh, it's a standalone story, by the way, a standalone novel that'll be digitally released worldwide on January 31st. Uh, in which the story seems to be about this girl who, you know, there are a lot of nasty rumors about her being a witch who, uh, feeds on the misfortune of others. And, uh, because of that, you know, she can't get any customers to come to her store. You know, uh, until this one guy shows up who is, like, actually interested in seeking her out. For whatever he needs her to do, I'm not really entirely sure. And so, you know, I, I guess, like, the whole twist is that, like, people think she's a witch, but, like, she actually turns out to be a vampire, essentially. You know, it's a, basically just a story about these two people, and, uh... Why can't she be both? I don't know, that, that would be interesting if she were both. I don't know what the logistics are of that, though. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know, this, um, this sounded interesting. Like, like, if I saw this at a store, and, like, it's a standalone, so, like... I'd pick it up and check it out. Mm -hmm. I realized that saying that I thought the fantasy one would be interesting was vague because that also could have meant the book naked. So I want to clarify. <laughs> I meant the who says warriors can't be babes. And uh, I actually do think that the Yuri one with the gym teacher in school knows is cute. And the ancient Megas Bride, I like the ancient Megas Bride one. So, yeah, I mean, I check those out, too. Hmm, fair enough. But let's move on from Cross Infinite World to uh, Yen Press, which has uh, which has licensed uh, which has licensed a, a light novel series based on that time I got reincarnated as a slime, called uh, The Ways of the Monster Nation, in which the first volume will be published in June. And uh, from from what I could read of the synopsis, it basically takes place i'm i'm assuming in a part of of the world of that time i got reincarnated as a slime that probably doesn't get as much focus in the main series this like like little nation of monsters and whatnot that, that sounds kind of neat yeah i don't have too much experience with the uh, that kind of got reincarnated as a slime but it's definitely something i want to check out at some point 
man, I, I was I was hoping you would know better than I would. Um, anyway, but uh, yeah, again, if if you're already a fan of that time I got reincarnated as a slime, and you want more of that series, you know, that's basically what we got here for you. Again, that's uh, again, that's coming out in June, and then uh, I think. Lum, I'm going to let you take care of these uh, last two pieces of uh, of licensing news because uh, we got some DMP stuff to talk about. Yeah, DMP has really messed up on this one. They had too many Kickstarters going at the same time that they couldn't fulfill, and so it's been like two years and ongoing that they have not fulfilled their books for the Wonders 3 Kickstarter, which was going to publish eight different Osama Tezuka books. And then in a recent update, uh, they announced that, well, we're not going to be doing that after all because we met with Tezuka Productions and Tezuka Productions was, I guess, not happy because they said that they couldn't publish the books in print anymore. So that's not happening. The only book that's actually getting made is Wonders 3. That's the only one that's going to be shipped out to people. And then every you're going to get a refund, I guess, if you pledge to get more of the books. But it's still real lame and real disappointing. And uh, I think it should, if not, if it hadn't happened already, it should effectively, like, kind of destroy any trust you might have in DMP as a company because they clearly have lost the trust of Tezka Productions themselves. And at the very least, I suppose, you if you did back at the high tiers for all the books, you did at least get the PDFs of the books. So you can still read them but you're not getting the print book, which is like the point of pledging at the high tier. So still wary, unfortunate, and kind of wary, unpleasant. But, you know, they posted recently a picture that the book is made, I guess. So hopefully those will actually ship out at some point in the future. And then they gave an update about the other Kickstarter campaigns, like the Kodomo no Chikan one and the Delico Psych one. Well, so, uh, apparently they are still working on their Kodomo no Jikan merchandise, and they will ship that out once rewards arrives, and they're gonna do that after Wonders 3 is done. And then, Delico Psych takes priority after that, and they are still working on setting up rewards that are not the books first, and they plan to do that around second quarter 2020. So uh, that's an update on that. Personally, I think they should have never done Kodomo no Jikan in the first place. I don't think that's a series that uh, should probably be licensed and brought over considering its content, but, well, that is on them. And that is all I have to say about the DMP stuff. We will now move on to industry news, where we have some very interesting stories. The first is that we have another story in the ongoing fight against piracy, because uh, Take Shobo and a manga creator have filed a lawsuit against the web security company Cloudfare, 
with the Tokyo District Court, and the lawsuit alleges that Cloudflare is complicit in copyright infringement by offering its service to manga piracy sites. And so Takashobu and the manga creator are seeking damages, and Takashobu is also seeking the removal of all of the manga data temporarily stored on Cloudflare's servers, you know, be deleted. So, yeah, basically their claim is that Cloudflare has provided service to manga piracy sites by knowing that the sites are legally offering manga. And that, among other services, Cloudflare connect as an intermediary between the server and its end users and provide content even when the original server is facing connection issues or distributed uh, DDoS attack. So, yeah, uh, it seems like among publisher and uh, creator are taking kind of these aggregate sites or aggregators of the task for basically... You know, while not directly being the perpetrator, you could say, they are aiding and abetting pirates by giving them access to file sharing abilities and hosting abilities. So this could be an interesting move. We can, we'll see how this case turns out, but it could potentially hinder, uh, the ability of other pirates to use Cloudflare as a means of distributing their files and uh, pirate materials. So that'll be very interesting to see. We have a really big story to talk about, though, in terms of a huge shakeup in the North American manga industry in particular, in that Kodansha, USA, and Vertical are consolidating. Vertical uh, is going to be... Brought in under the Kodansha Comics label, so will the digital distribution uh, arm of Kodansha, Kodansha, Vans Media. They're, they're all going to be now consolidated under the Kodansha Comics label. And what that basically means is that Vertical Comics, effectively as a brand, is likely to be discontinued as they're all, all these titles under Vertical are now going to be just brought under Kodansha and will just be Kodansha Comics titles. So... You're very likely to see the end of the imprint of vertical comments, like, just go away in the future, very near future, as, like, these things uh, kind of settle up. And that's basically a big deal, because it's basically uh, one publisher, like, out of the market effectively. I mean, Kodansha and Vertical were all owned by the same parent company, and so it's not... Too surprising that they would go, oh, we don't need to have two different manga publishers. We can just consolidate and have one manga publisher. And, like, effectively, they almost acted as one publisher for the last couple of years at conventions. If you went to any con and went into the exhibitor's hall dealer's room, like, Kadansha and Vertical Boot is a combined boot of four Kodansha and Vertical products. Like, they they would have, like, one side is Kodansha, and on the other side, the boot is Vertical. And they would host their industry panels together. They would announce, like, a Kodansha and Vertical comics and licenses at the same panel. So, it was kind of inevitable. It kind of makes sense why Ed Chavez left Vertical when he did now and decided to start his own 
publishing company because you might have seen like the writing on the wall once vertical was brought under like the same parent company's Kenansha. But yeah, it's very interesting. Let's uh, see this kind of shake up and we'll see like how this may affect the market in the future, like whether Kadansha comics will like vertical license out non Kadansha books. That will be curious to see. And we'll have to see the future of ongoing comics under the vertical line as well. Like, how those will shake out. If they will continue under Kadansha Comics branding. So, very interesting. There's also, of course, some personnel shakeups. Uh, Takashi Sakura is now the chief operating officer of uh, Kadansha USA Publishing. Alvin Liu is now the CEO and president of Kadansha USA Publishing after previously being the general manager of Kadansha Advanced Media. Kichiro Sugawara is now the named publisher. Even Salazar, who is a former PR and event specialist under Comicsology, I actually remember seeing him at New York Comic Con for the Manga Ikimashoka panel. He was one of the panelists. He's now going to be a senior marketing editor for Kadansha USA Publishing. So it's very interesting as like a big kind of shake up to like this U.S. manga scene to begin the 2020s. And uh, we'll see what will happen from here with uh, vertical comics titles and then uh, just the direction that's going to go. But yeah, we are going to move on to a... Another bit of just following up on previous stories, more industry-related stories. And that's some more updates to the Kyoto animation story, which is basically recently, you know, we had talked about that the plan was to demolish the Kyoto Animation Studio building that caught on fire, you know. But uh, the Neighborhood Association from Fushimi Ward has sent a written request to Kyoto Animation not to build a monument or park on the site of the burn building because they were concerned that it would attract a large number of visitors and it would affect kind of the tranquility of the neighborhood from like, you know, people kind of pilgrimaging to pay tribute at any memorial site that they would uh, put up there. And they basically had asked that its members could be participants in any negotiations on how to use the site after the studio building is completely demolished. And they requested that plans be submitted to them before the demolition finishes. And the demolition is still ongoing. It's started in early January and it's going to go through late April and Kyoani has not yet stated their concrete plans after the demolition. A representative was reported as saying, we'll consider all factors and make a decision after consulting with the bereaved families, local residents, and other related parties. So with these concerns of people in the neighborhood, we may not have like a memorial site or any like monument being placed on the site of the burn building. I think they will just leave that be and not tamper with it. Just because it does make sense. Like, this is a residential neighborhood, and if they did set up, like, a memorial there, not only would anime fans from Japan 
might make that a pilgrimage site, but you might get, like, outside tourists, and that could be potentially destructive to, like, what is, a, you know, not really meant to be a touristy location. It's just, you know, a neighborhood, and it's not really set up for a tourism business, so... Yeah, it's a worthwhile concern, I suppose, to keep in mind, and we'll see, like, what they do decide to do with the demolished site with that land afterward. But in more positive news, the families and the victims of the arson incident are receiving workers' comp. So... They had uh, collected a survey uh, determining, you know, the child-rearing costs and after-effects of the attack for the injured and the families of the victims of the attack. And now they're distributing the monies raised through donations, which total over 30 million U.S. dollars. And so, you know, a plan is being formulated for, like, the individual distribution of the money and... The committee is hoping to convene to decide on a course of action on the first time of February. So we will be seeing financial relief being paid out to the victims and their families very soon, which is very, very welcoming. But now we're going to head into some anime news. If you want to start off with some cool new announcements. Oh yeah, so um, this this I was uh, very happy about, and I'm I'm sure you feel the same way that Yoshitoki Oima's To Your Eternity, of which we have talked about on the show before, and have struggled to get back to the manga of, is now getting an anime, uh, that will be airing on uh, NHK Educational this October. I can only imagine that this will hopefully get a simulcast as well. Not a lot of info on, like, who is involved in the production at this point and whatnot, at least not as far as I know or can tell. But we do have... We, we, we do have a key visual, and uh, I know I saw somewhere that we already had, like, character design sheets or whatever kind of spreading out there or whatnot. And uh, I don't know, from from what I saw, I, I like the look at the show so far, and I definitely like the key visual at least, and uh, uh, j judging from the character designs that I had seen earlier, um, I don't know, I, I thought they looked expressive enough, I can't really, I wish, I wish I had the ability to tell who was working behind this, because it does look good so far. And yeah, I don't know. I don't really have much else to add to the conversation here other than I'm I'm looking forward to checking this out when it eventually comes out. And uh, I need to kick myself. I need to kick my ass and read the manga again because I miss it. Yeah, I feel the same. I also want to get back into the manga. And I'm quite looking forward to the anime coming out because I think it'll bring a lot of attention to the manga. And I think that in the right hands, this will be a very talked about show and story, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing more people get into it and discover it and share their thoughts on it. Right, but we, we do have something else to look forward to if you want to go ahead and talk about that, Lum. Yes, and uh, very soon as well, because the new Ghost in the Shell series, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Comics 2045, is going to debut worldwide on Netflix in April, and they released a trailer for it. They released a 
teaser visual for it and I watched the trailer and I really really think the character animation is great it's an old CG show in contrast to Ghost in a Shell standalone complex seasons 1 and 2 which were you know 2D traditionally animated with some CG elements of course but this is like all CG animation but it's really good CG animation like the character animation is really good the aesthetic is really good like it looks like the character designs from the original standalone conflict seasons, so it just translates into 3D, so I really appreciate that. And standalone conflicts is my favorite interpretation of Ghost in a Shell, so I am very much looking forward to seeing more being done with that version of the universe and the characters for sure. And yeah, I really like Ghost in the Shell, and this looks like some cool uh, more follow-ups to Ghost in the Shell. But speaking of Netflix... Oh yeah, speaking of Netflix, so I'm struggling to call this like surprising news because there have been some signs that this was what it was going to lead to, but uh, uh, we we finally have some, some more news on that dang old One Piece live-action series that... Uh, has has been in the works since 2017, and that uh, Netflix will be helping to produce this series. And uh, we have a lot more info on this as well, in that we finally have, like, a, a whole new Twitter account was started to announce this news, essentially, which you can follow at One Piece Netflix on Twitter. Uh, whoever's running the account basically posted a message from Ichiro Oda himself, in which he basically talks about how he he is going to be overseeing the production of this uh, series. He's going to be uh, the executive producer uh, that has been confirmed, and how uh, it's basically coming to Netflix, uh, and that this first season is going to be about 10 episodes or so. And uh, yeah, he's basically just expresses his, uh, his excitement about how this thing is coming along and whatnot, and uh, yeah, that's basically about it there in terms of like some other like productional tidbits i don't know if it was confirmed through here but just kind of reading the blog post about this on uh, funimation it looks like the showrunner of uh of this live action one piece will be uh steven maeda who i'm assuming was probably the showrunner for the x-files because they have that listed next to his name and uh as well as uh writer matt owens we we kind of knew about this uh the last time we talked about this, you know, he 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 was a writer for a couple episodes of uh, Marvel's Agents of Shield, Luke Cage, uh, a, a few other Marvel shows. He's expressed how he is a huge fan of One Piece and whatnot, and he's very excited to work on this thing. And so, yeah, that's um, that's really about what we know so far. Again, the the series is definitely coming to Netflix, and I hesitate to call this very surprising just because I think the the One Piece podcast guys basically found a listing for a One Piece show on Netflix originally that uh, didn't look like it was all ready for the anime or anything. So, like, I, I, I kind of had a feeling that, you know, this was going to be coming at some point to Netflix. And so, yeah, like, I mean, I that's really about all we have at this point. But, I mean, like, that's, that's still, still, still enough to go off of. You know, we... We kind of have a, we have a pretty good idea of who's behind the production of this. It's going to be ten episodes. I'm really wondering if they're going to be like just adapting the. I mean, obviously they're adapting the manga, but I, I wonder if they're gonna like. I wonder how much story they're going to try to fit in the ten episodes. And like, 
I don't know. I'm I'm really I'm actually really excited to see like how this turns out, which I'm I'm happy about personally because like again like every 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 time there's news about this live action One Piece thing like you always have people who are like just just negative out the gate and I'm not saying I like necessarily blame them because like usually I'm I would be right along there with them but like I actually kind of have faith in this just because like you know the you have Shueisha and Oda themselves like behind this thing like they I li- I would like to think they're they're working hard behind the scenes to make sure that this ends up as good as it possibly can in live action. So personally, I have faith that this will at least be watchable. Like, like I I, th- I think I tweeted about this a little while back that like you know like if this were being handled by literally anybody else, then yeah, I would I would be right along there with you guys. Like I would I'd be just as afraid. And again, I also understand that like not everything about One Piece is gonna probably work in live action. Some things are just gonna look weird, I'm sure, and that's to be expected. But again, like, Shueisha at this point, you know, th- th- this isn't the Shueisha that basically was like, okay, 20th Century Fox, just do whatever you want the Dragon Ball and we'll be fine with whatever. Like, I'm pretty sure they have learned this lesson, that th- they've learned their lesson at this point as far as, like, just letting whoever handle their properties and whatnot. I'm I'm sure they're gonna be watching Tomorrow Studios and Netflix very closely on this in terms of, like, quality control and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I, I apologize. I'm just kind of, like, rambling at this point, going all over the place. I have a lot of thoughts. But, uh, I don't know. Is there anything you have to say about live-action One Piece coming to Netflix? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Shueisha doesn't want another Dragon Ball Evolution, so they're gonna pay attention. They're gonna make sure that they stick to Oda's vision. They're going to make sure that the producers... I mean, the fact that Oda is an executive producer, that they're going to be consulting him, is very key. Like, they are going to have to get his, like, approval. He's going to have to sign off on whatever they do. So that will make a difference, at least in terms of uh, faithfulness to the source material. And then I'm sure that, you know, these are veteran kind of... Uh, filmmakers, television people, like, they know probably the limits of what they can do, at least starting off, and they probably can be smart about how they choose to adapt the material, so with ten episodes, assuming they're, like, an hour in length, you know, I could see them covering pretty far. I would say, at least, I think probably the smartest course of action would be to get through the end of Baradier. And save, like, Arlong Park for the following season, just because to do Arlong Park and to do the Fishman characters, you're going to require, like, CG, or at the very least, like, some extensive makeup work. And that'll cost a lot of time and resources. So, at least starting off with a first season, like, you probably not want to have to worry about that just yet and just focus on like kind of making some of the more parts of the story that won't require such extensive digital post-production stuff just focus on that kind of material and then do that really well get the attention on the show get the buzz and then you can uh, increasingly up the ante in what she can do. This is just kind of like what Game of Thrones did in terms of how it also was. I mean, it was very 
expensive, like, from the beginning. It was also very well-produced. But the stuff that they did early on was a far cry from the stuff, like, they did by the end in terms of, like, the scale of how they use CG and digital effects and all that stuff. And that's and that only happened by the end of that show because it became incredibly popular. And so they were able to convince HBO to invest more resources into it to make it, you know, even better. So they kind of probably want to strategize to do the same thing with One Piece. But yeah, I mean, we will see how the show turns out. You know, One Piece is a very cartoony manga. I mean, Luffy, in terms of his rubber powers, is like kind of a definitionally cartoon character. But so it's going to be where you see how that translates to like live action. But, you know, maybe they can pull it off. And, you know, I am definitely interested in seeing the show. If nothing else, this is going to get people talking about One Piece and potentially discovering One Piece. Like, the news of this breaking caused One Piece to trend on Twitter. So, that alone should tell you, like, the value in doing this, whether it turns out bad or good. It's like, it's going to get more attention on One Piece is going to get people talking about it, and potentially that will drive more people to the manga, which is, like, I think, ultimately the end goal as well. So, yeah, we'll see what will come of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, and I know this is probably a low bar, but as long as this turns this turns out better than the live-action Death Note on Netflix, I'm cool with anything, honestly. Mm-hmm. But that's, that, yeah. that's, that's, that, is, that is my bar of entry, personally. But anyway, yeah, so I believe we have yeah. one more piece of news to talk about. Uh, we have a few more to quickly go through. On the subject of long-running shonen properties, like having some announce- exciting announcements or for a potential like big return in the future, it was recently announced that at Anime Japan 2020, there will be a stage presentation titled Bleach 20th Anniversary Project and Tight Kubo New Work Presentation. That'll be happening on March 21st. And it will be attended by voice actors Mazukazu Morita and Ryotaro Okiao, Shonen Jump Editor-in-Chief Horioki Nakano, and America Zarigani Comedy Duo member Yoshiyuki Hirai. And so... In addition to this, there was also a domain uh, published recently and also a logo on that domain, which is like the Bleach logo. And there's like face again plastered on the logo. So that's making people very curious and very hopeful that this could be an adaptation of the final arc of Bleach. The long-awaited adaptation of the final arc of Bleach. We will see what form this new project takes, but it is very curious. I mean, they are bringing out talent to promote this. And if nothing else, there is going to be announcement of a new work from Tai Kubo. They potentially could be announcing his return to Weekly Shonen Jump with a new serialization. So that is big news in of itself. I've also heard rumors that, like... They may announce, like, an OVA adaptation of Burn the Witch, probably. I don't know how likely that is, but even that would be kind of cool. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, all I'm gonna say is I I hope that for the sake of 
everyone that they're announcing some kind of continuation for the Bleach anime, if only just to, like, if only to calm down all the people who constantly accuse Shueisha of canceling Bleach and never liking Bleach and always wanting to canceling Bleach whenever they possibly could. It's their fault that we don't have an adaptation of the Thousand Year Blood War arc. Clearly. I'm sorry, I've, I, I've had my run-in with a, with a few Bleach fans sometimes, and it's just, it's exhausting. Well, they are passionate, I suppose. Yeah, you could, that is, that is a word that you can use to, to describe them, that is for sure. Or fanatic is another term, I suppose. This is not me saying all Bleach fans are like that, because I know, I know people who like Bleach and are not totally insane and don't rant on social media all the time, but like... Jesus, guys, like, man, I don't know. I'm at a loss for words. I'm sure whatever it is, it'll be, it'll be cool. Or maybe it'll be, it'll be tight Kubo providing character designs for another idol game or whatever. I don't know. It could be a lot of things, but maybe it'll be Bleach related. We'll, we'll see come March. Yeah, March 21st. So we got a couple weeks worth of speculation ahead. Lots to really wonder about. So keep your fingers crossed. All right. But we have uh, just a couple things to wrap up to continue on a subject of big street-related news pieces, I suppose. Let's talk about free comic book day samplers for this year. And Wiz's sampler will be a combo of Naruto and Samurai 8. I almost wonder if Samurai 8 is even going to last in serialization. (laughs) Till uh, May 2nd. I think in May barely, just because there are other series that could end before it, but it's not the breakout hit that I think uh, they were looking for. But this has another sampler aimed more towards kids, uh, which will include Akira Himakawa's Legend of Zelda, Twilight Princess, and Hideki Goto's Splatoon's Squid Kids Comedy Show. And then there are some samplers from other publishers. Tokyo Pop is putting out Mi Tagawa as the Fox and Little Tanuki, and Kodansha is going to have a sampler of Kanata Konomi's Su and Taichan. And lastly, we have announcement of some new Eisner nominations. We have two mangaka now nominated for the Eisner Hall of Fame this year. And as part of a selection of 14 nominees, and four of whom will ultimately be inducted into Hall of Fame. These year's mangaka nominees include Moto Hagio, veteran shoujo and shonenai mangaka, famous for works like they were 11, A Drunken Dream, The Heart of Thomas, and many, many others. Oh, and The Pool Clan, especially. And we also have Keiji Nakazawa, who is the creator of Barefoot Gem. Wow. So these are two very wordy, very deserving choices to be inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame. It's very interesting that Toriyama and Noki Arasawa were nominated last year, but they were not selected, and they are not nominated again this year, so that's kind of interesting that they have not been chosen to be nominated again, but regardless, they are up against, you know, some stiff competition in terms of other nominees. You got Alison Bechtel, you got Bill Waters and Stan Sakai, so like there are a lot of huge, huge names that are being nominated this year, but uh, they are definitely very deserving of being inducted, and so we will see if 
either one or both of them will be. But that wraps us up for news. And now I think we can head into our own Takahashi discussion. Normally, most of the manga we talk about on Manga Mavericks are commercial manga. Manga published through publishers in Japan. Artists working directly with a publisher to serialize their works and distribute them. However, many artists also make their own independent comics, which we refer to as Dujinshi. And they distribute these independent comics just through their own means, by posting them online, distributing them at places like Homicat, and all sorts of places. But a lot of these Dujinshi aren't usually distributed by Western publishing houses. They aren't usually licensed and brought over here uh, for international fans to read and enjoy. But in recent years, we have seen more of an effort from publishers starting up and trying to bring over Dujinji over to fans in the West and internationally. And one of those companies is Irodori Comics, who works directly with artists to publish their Dujinji in English uh, worldwide. And one of these publishers is Irodori Comics. And we have on today the CEO of Irodori Comics, Own Takahashi, to talk about localizing, distributing Dujinji, and especially to talk about their new Iridori Aqua imprint, which publishes non-erotic Dujinji. Oh, and thank you for coming on the show. Ah, oh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, this is, uh, I'm pretty excited about this. We don't, uh, I mean, we, we've had people, f- uh, from the industry before, but I think, uh, Certainly never a CEO. No, never. Ah. You're, you're, you're the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like, those are titles, you know, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm still very much just a person from the industry, right? And, um, you know, that's why, like, uh, you know, recently the whole, like, Crunchyroll uh, tweet and so on, it's like, I still want to, like, look out for my fellow peers and so on. Like, this whole, like, CEO thing, I'm, I won't say, like, it's in title only, but, you know, don't get too hung up on that part. <laughs> Please, um, just uh, talk to me like you would um, anybody else. Of course. And you've had a storied career as a translator in the industry as well. So I really appreciate like your tweets on the subject of translation and commentary on the industry from the perspective of someone who has worked in it uh, and worked very closely on translations. Yeah, um, I have a kind of a mixed background. Um, I speak both. Uh, I grew I'm I'm actually Japanese Kiwi. Yeah, so uh, I grew up speaking um, English, you know, outside of home, and I grew up speaking Japanese to my parents. So I, I was raised speaking both languages, which means um, I can translate both ways in terms of language, right? I can translate from Japanese to English, which I do for my, you know, doujinshi work. And I can translate from English to Japanese, which I do with um, various other forms of media. So that often also means that I have, in terms of opportunities i have a lot of doors doors i can knock on yeah so when you're a j to e translator you know japanese to english you don't really want to make a lot of enemies uh there's only you know you can count the number of big let's say manga publishers out there and even in terms of video games like you know there's only a handful of players so it's hard for a lot of translators to speak up about their you know honest opinions they don't want to drop any names and get blacklisted right and the reality is that there's always going to be someone out there who can uh, replace you yeah like 
everybody, everybody wants to work in video games, anime, and manga if you're learning Japanese, right? Of course, there's, there's more money to be made in you know, business translation, legal translation, technical translation, but you know, the, the, the cool subjects would definitely be uh, you know, the otaku culture, anime, games, and manga. So when you have a lot of upstarting translators like nipping at your heel, right? And you have like publishers and companies like coming, pressuring you from the top. Uh, it's a very lonely world out there. You know, sometimes you got to bear with all the problems and frustrations and everything by yourself. Or, you know, every now and then you can uh, let out your frustration and talk about it on the internet and so on. But it's kind of hard for people <laughs> to just name their employer and like complain about it, you know? They don't want to face a repercussion. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to burn any bridges. Right, right, right. Like, in my case, like, I've always been a little bit more open to that. Like, if somebody treats you pretty badly, um, you know, I kind of don't mind burning that bridge. <laughs> I could always just look for a, look for another bridge kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I won't recommend that tactic to everybody, but, you know. It's uh, it's uh, I think it's important as an industry that we uh, keep these kind of conversations going. It's always important to talk about rates because, in all honesty, like you don't know the rates even now, right? Um, and this is uh, something I want to clarify in regards to the whole Crunchyroll thing. Um, I don't have any beef against Crunchyroll. Uh, I've never, I've actually never consumed any of their media before, so I don't know about Crunchyroll's quality. I wasn't aware of Crunchyroll during the whole like turning legal kind of era. I don't I don't know about any of that really. Just when I heard about this um eighty dollars per video thing, I thought, oh wow, like I personally would never touch that kind of thing. But here an important thing to know though is that um Crunchyroll hasn't broken any laws. And even this whole like underpaying their staff, this underpaying isn't like you know quotation marks, right? It is the open market. If people put their hand up with that rate, you know, that's that's a deal done. So it's the real uh, kind of wild, wild west in the uh, translation industry because nobody knows uh, what rates people are working on because we're all bogged down and tied up with um, NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements. So really, like, people actually don't know what rates they're working on. It's only when you actually meet someone in person and talk about it and you're like, what? You're making, like, so many more than you know so much more than i am or you're working you're working we're doing the same job and you're working for so much less you know it's a bit of a nightmare to navigate through the whole rates discussion in translation Mm -hmm. sounds like there's a need for a translator's guild or union to help with collective bargaining (laughs) that's also really difficult though because like um often unions are based you know like in certain locations, right? Like you'd have like the American Union for translators and so on. But translators can live all over the world, right? I mean, some of the, the folks working on, you know, uh, Weekly Shonen Jump, you know, not all of them live in America. I mean, some of them live in New Zealand, some of them live in Japan, you know, they're all over the place. So it's kind of hard to get people to unionize. And again, like, if, say, for example, like these American-based translators unionize, then it's kind of easy for the company to be like, hey, we're just going to start picking people not based in the U.S. So it's like, I feel like um, I'm not against unionization. It's just, realistically speaking, I think it's a very long road ahead. But I think the first, like, instead of going straight to unionizing, I feel like more open discussion, open dialogue about rates, uh, you know, self-worth, value, 
those kind of things are very um, important. Yeah, I think that's a good thing about the conversation that has happened recently, just to spread awareness not only between other translators, but also to fans and perhaps just the collective like consensus of, hey, translators should be paid a better rate for bringing over the anime people watch every week. You know, that could lead to some helpful results down the line to have this conversation. Yeah, yeah, especially, and um, sometimes it's kind of really interesting, but um, I have met so many people in my life that don't value translation as a skill. They think of it as, you know, like, oh, you speak two languages. So they think this is some sort of, like, faucet inside your head where you can just, like, flick the tap and, like, a language comes up. You flick the other tap and, like, the other language comes up. Like, it's this automatic thing. So they don't actually realize that, you know, translators are translating in their head you know, in real time, right? It's not It's not just a matter of like, you know, flicking your finger and like one language comes out and then the other comes out. You can't just read off a screen and instantly, you know, translate that in your head. Well, some translators can, but not everyone. I mean, if only it were that easy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want instant results, then, you know, that's what Google Translate is for, right? But it's not always the most <laughs> accurate... Uh, you know? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> thing to rely on, yeah, yeah. So, like, I think one of the yeah one of the important things is um valuing translation. Like, uh, poof, I I forgot the name of the director, but the director the, there was a Korean director who won the Golden Globes recently for his movie Parasite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he said like, if you can overcome the one inch barrier of subtitles, like it unlocks an entire world of different movies translation is exactly that like you know, he his translator put it you know perfectly but you know like with with manga as well same as anime like because these works are translated it literally unlocks thousands and thousands of these worlds you know within each manga that you never would have been able to access before so translators are very important you know the role that they provide and anime and manga it's it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger right I mean, rewind the clock 10 years ago, ah, 10, 15 years ago, you know, if you liked anime, you were a loser. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, like, um, I don't, you know, like, I watched a lot of those, like, American uh, TV shows and movies and whatnot. And, like, the nerd guys, you know, the nerd kids go through hell. You know, I grew up in New Zealand, so, yeah, you know, like, we had, you know, uh, bullying and clicks and, you know whatnot but it wasn't i mean i guess the american tv shows like over exaggerate a lot of the jocks and nerds and uh, all that kind of stuff yeah but. i would say so i would say that these days a lot of what you might think of as jocks are also big nerds in themselves There's right been right many stories of nfl football players like being so in love with anime especially dragon ball right right yeah exactly and like i don't know like um my image like a lot of black americans love like fighting games and dragon ball and you know Bruce Lee and whatnot, so it's like I feel like anime and manga has really come out into the um, mainstream in the past. You know, compared to the past ten to fifteen years, right? Like maybe in the past five years, like people have been very um, outspoken about manga. You know, their their love for manga and anime. Uh, was it the guy um, Michael B. Jordan, right from uh, Black oh, Panther? Yeah. yeah, he said he's a big Naruto fan. He he had some like collab like Naruto yeah, merchandise, yeah, like a fashion collab last year, and like his 
armor in Black Panther was modeled after Saiyan armor in Dragon Ball for his yeah, Killmonger yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when he when they robbed when they robbed that axe or something, right? Axe head. Yeah, yeah. 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 They looked like Vegeta's armor. Yeah, yeah. So like <laughs> even things like that. I mean, you know, maybe like in the very beginning, like um, the influence of manga and anime was really small. Like, uh, oh, for example, Star Wars is a good example. Yeah. Uh, George Lucas was a film student of Akira Kurosawa's. What's Kurosawa Akira's film student, right? So that's why in, uh, with Star Wars, like a lot of the inspiration came from Japanese samurai culture. And it actually came from like mistranslation as well. Like the name Jedi came from the Japanese word Jedi Geki, which means like a samurai epic. <laughs> hmm, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Right. So like Jedi Geki translated into... um. Jidaigeki's literal translation means period films. But, you know, when we localize the word Jidaigeki, you know, it often turns into, like, uh, samurai films. And so George Lucas, like, looked at Jidai and thought, yeah, you know, this means samurai. I'm going to take that. And it became a Jedi. (laughs) But for Japanese people, we're like, wait, like, literally the word period, time period, is the name of these, like, guys fighting with lightsabers? Like, that's kind of cool and strange at the same time. Yeah, it's 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 so it's so funny how like one of the biggest franchises in the entire world just came from a guy who was like, "What if I made samurais in space?" Yeah, <laughs> I think often like you know a lot of great ideas are just weird mashups of um you know like pre pre existing things, right? Like, I don't know if you guys play video games, but recently um was it a Death Stranding by Hideo Kojima? Right? It's like a delivery game set in a post apocalyptic future. Um, games like The Last of Us. All right, let's have a uh, a zombie game and um, put in a you know kind of like a father daughter esque narrative story and overlap it with um, zombies. Sometimes mixing up things gives you great results. Definitely. I don't play a lot of video games myself nowadays, but like Death Stranding, I I I feel like I need to play at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm playing it now, and I'm yeah, I'm loving it. I'm loving every moment of it actually. Yeah. It's um it's less less on the uh, action definitely like it's not um it's not like Metal Gear Solid style of you know shoot your way through bad guys and so on but um yeah you you feel like there's a very special message Hideo Kojima's trying to tell the user and once you start to understand what he's going for like yeah like it hits you at every point and it, it's a great game. I I don't want to spoil it for you but yeah strongly recommend playing it. Excellent. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry for going off topic. Yeah, no, 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 no. problem, no problem. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, we're talking about <laughs> Crunchyrolls and rates. Yeah. Oh yeah, so yeah, yeah, so the the industry is getting bigger and bigger, and it's not gonna slow down. I mean, now like America's having its like anime wave, right? I think, and realistically speaking, like this is kind of true for Japan. Like everyone thinks that Japanese people are born into a world of anime and manga. And to some degree, that's true. But uh, for example, like even anime, right? In Japanese, we have different words for anime. We have anime and we have shinya anime. Shinya anime means nighttime anime. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, so these are the type of anime shows that are shown, I don't know, after 10 p.m. So, for example, let's say, like, Naruto is an anime. Naruto, uh, Full Metal Alchemist, you know, that's your anime. And Shinya anime would be, like, Stainsgate. Yeah. 
those are stuff like aimed towards like the otaku audience in a sense like people who are really really into anime which uh, different from like naruto which shares well boruto airs like sunday nights at like six or something yeah 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 like general audience kind of and so this was actually really really interesting um because you know in uh in western culture especially you know anime fans among english speakers you have a lot of um uh, gatekeeping oh yeah <laughs> yeah and um you know, like I, I always, ah, I always see these on Twitter, like um, or YouTube comment sections, and people are like, oh, what you watch Naruto? Like, you know, you have to watch a real anime, and then you know they list off all of these like real anime, and they're all like Shinya anime, right? And um, the the funny thing is like people in Japan, like otaku in Japan, do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, we, we actually have a word for it, like, you know, Shinya anime, right? So, the otakus in Japan are like, oh, you know, uh, you know, you're a filthy casual, like, you know, watching Naruto, <laughs> like, you know, if you want to be an otaku, you got to watch Shinya anime. But uh, in English, you know, because you don't have that specific vocabulary to distinguish between Naruto and Stainsgate, you know, it, it all falls under the uh, umbrella of anime, right? So it feels like it feels a lot more gatekeeping ish. That's so funny that like that they have that distinction considering what was it in the past like year or so you had stuff airing on late night like the newest uh uh the newest like Bakabon anime or whatnot. Just like goofy stuff like that. That was also a little more adult team too, I suppose. So I guess it would make sense. But yeah, it's we I guess we don't have that distinction over here just because anime doesn't get aired on tv at different times like it is in japan since most a lot of people consume it via streaming sites like crunchyroll and then the only network that actually airs anime airs at late night and they air naruto at like 2 a.m on saturday nights (laughs) yeah like i mean that's kind of like i mean you know i don't i don't like gatekeeping but um with the whole like because you guys don't have that word to distinguish it it makes the gatekeepers sound like more of a dick. Yeah. Because the, on- the only English word to distinguish it is like real anime. Because then the opposite <laughs> of real anime is like, you know, fake or un- unreal, you know, which it's not, right? Anime is anime. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, because like, because like, the, call, calling something like, well, this is real anime. Like, that's so, that's so subjective. Yeah. And like, it's the thing is that you can never put a, you can never put a, like, I don't know, like, you started at this age, therefore you're more legit. Like, you're more of a fan. Like, that would never make sense. Like, for example, when I was a baby, my parents would have a Ampan Man on the telly. Yeah? So, I technically started watching anime at, like, zero years old, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the whole thing is, like, you know, but uh, let's say, like, a Western anime fan, gatekeeper guy, would never include Ampaman into the definition of real anime. Yeah, it's this interesting thing that some people, like a while ago, were like trying to say, you know, anime is an aesthetic, so it looks like a certain way. And so some of these family anime in Japan, they don't consider it like the anime that they think of categorically, which is like going all supposed to justify like why they consider stuff that are Western animation like Avatar anime, because that fits into their aesthetic idea of what anime is. And it's a very weird conversation from my perspective, because it's like, well, it's Japanese animation, it's anime. (laughs) 
And it, uh, humorously, it's like a lot of people who are anime fans over here probably have never heard of Anpanman or even are aware of like these family shows that are for general audiences like Sazai-san and Shin-chan and Doraemon even. Yeah, because I mean, like, speaking just for myself personally, like, I don't think there's ever been a time where, like, I've thought about, well, what is anime to me? I, I don't think my own definition of anime has ever changed from, like, oh, it's just something animated in Japan. And I don't, th- I don't, I don't think it's ever, like, been any more than that, you know? Like, it, it's, it's never been based on aesthetic for me personally, but I know a lot of other people feel differently. Yeah. I mean, because, like, in, in Japan, like, we say uh, kaigai anime, like, foreign anime, and that's where you have, like, you know, your Frozen, your Lilo and Stitch, your Samurai Jacks, and Adventure uh, Time. Puff Girls. Yeah, all of that. All of that. Like, anime is literally, like, animation. Yeah. yeah. Right? So it's like, you know, it doesn't matter who it's made by. I mean, of course, you can... um put the name of the country like i don't know or you can say oh frozen is a disney anime <laughs> yeah and um i forgot that uh i forgot that studio but there was this like french uh french anime studio that made uh that had this very very ghibli-esque movie i think it released like maybe two or three years ago yeah like that's a french anime i don't know like we don't try to uh, shit on another country i don't, I don't feel like the Japanese industry ever tries to like monopolize the term anime as to just their own creation. Like it has to be from us. Not really. Cause I'm mean, even like places like comic, right? The comic market, like we always talk about artists from Taiwan, artists from China, artists from Korea. And we say like, Oh yeah, the author is Korean. The author is Chinese. The author is from Hong Kong, but we never reject their works as not manga. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you never see, you never see anybody in Japan when when they happen to see like Netflix is producing their own He-Man anime or whatever, and they're not like, "Hey, that's our word." <laughs> it's a very Western concept that, we, like, for some reason, fans of animation over here really want to classify anime as like a specific thing. Whether it's like an aesthetic thing or a Japanese, or just to refer to Japanese animation. Whereas if I, if we just refer to it more neutrally as Japanese animation, and then thought of it as this is animation from this country, and then there's animation from Russia, and animation from China and France and stuff like, that's kind of like oh, this is just all of this stuff is animation. It's not like fundamentally like different at its core, other than like it was made in different countries. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, um, in Japan, uh, like, South Park is popular. Mm-hmm. You know, Simpsons, like, there's a lot of Simpson merchandise going on. Like, uh, you know, I'm from New Zealand, and yeah, like, I grew up watching South Park. And even in New Zealand, we had our own, like, New Zealand animated show called Bro Town, which was, I mean, I still believe, like, one of the top three funniest shows, you know, right up there with South Park, right? Wow. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. It was made by a group of... um. You know, uh, New Zealand comedians, uh, Oscar Knightley, and so on, and they um they uh they kind of put a comedic spin on um the life of a uh, Maori and uh, Polynesian people growing up in um South Auckland, yeah, and it was ridiculously funny, and yeah, like I mean, I would proudly call that you know New Zealand anime, you know, and it's just as funny as you know any other other Japanese 
comedy shows like I know Gintama and uh Granbu uh Granbu I don't know I don't know the English name but yeah like Granbu and so on like you know those funny anime shows yeah so I think it's kind of nonsense to say oh anime can only be Japanese blah 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 yeah <laughs> cuz like for example like uh you, you know you have your Justice League cartoons right mm-hmm. yeah but then you also have like the animated Marvel series done by Japanese studios. Yeah, hmm. like uh, Avengers Discourse. Right, right. And then like, so what? Are you supposed to suddenly say, "Oh no, no, th- these aren't cartoons; these are anime." But the Justice League and your, um, you know, Batman's and Spider-Man's and whatnot; these are all like cartoons. Like these are two separate things. See, ma- see, Marvel's better than DC because Marvel can be anime. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god, I think that's just adding fuel to the fire. <laughs> well, like I don't know, I I grew up on those um Saturday morning Batman, Spider-Man and, you know, Justice League shows. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and as a kid growing up, right? My grandparents would like send me like videotapes of like recorded anime, like they'd send like a cardboard box full of them, right? And so like on Sunday mornings, you know, you'd wake up, I don't know if you guys have it in America, but like in your morning, you have your morning like cartoon shows right yeah we used to have saturday morning cartoons but that kind of tradition died out with the decline of cable tv and now it's like there are cartoons you know that air on saturday morning but it's not like a special tradition of oh new episodes new uh, cartoons are airing on oh, saturday okay. mornings or weekend yeah mornings. There's, yeah there's no like dedicated block to these kinds of things anymore yeah, but back in back when we were kids and growing up, that was actually where a lot of Japanese animation would be shown, uh, like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, Sonic X, yeah, yeah, yeah. One Piece and Shaman King. Yeah, so like that's kind of the interesting thing about New Zealand, though, is that um, uh, as a country, like we only have four million people. Well, I think four point five, maybe now hitting five million. So it's like a tiny little country, right? And so that means like you know we only have. Maybe like four broadcasters in New Zealand. You know, like, I guess in like America, like each state would have like two or three broadcasters, right? Well, there are a lot of local affiliates of the big uh, channels that exist in America. So like every county or or on some like division will have their own version of Fox or the CW or ABC. So it's like, and then there are some areas might even have their own specific channels, but there are like tons of different variants in these like bigger channels. And then you have like the satellite channels that are like everyone has access to, or if they pay a subscription. In New Zealand, like you literally have TV1 on channel 1, TV2 on channel 2, TV3 on channel 3, and uh, I think on Maori TV which is like the Maori language TV program. And I think that's about it for public broadcasters. Wow. And then you have like your Sky TV, um, you know, um, uh, I guess that's like cable. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, it's, a re- it's really small. So that means like um, most, you know, New Zealand um, TV broadcasters don't have too much money. So they try to like license the cheapest deal like possible. And so that often means like not keeping up to date on things like Game of Thrones and so on. But buying the licenses for reruns of Dragon Ball is like extremely cheap. Mm -hmm. So as a kid growing up in New Zealand, like, I don't know, for like 10 years, every day when you go home and you switch on the telly at like four o'clock, you can watch Dragon Ball. Nice. 
And I, I, I won't be surprised if that's still the case, right? Because like, you'd have like SpongeBob from like, I don't know, 3.30 to 4. And then from 4 to 4.30, you have Dragon Ball. And then you have like Naruto after that, right? Yeah, so it's kind of a kind of a really interesting situation there. And then, you know, like I said before, uh, The Bro Town, you know, it's a little bit of an adult-esque comedy. So that was brought like later in the night. That was like the, the Shinya anime of New Zealand, right? Yeah, and uh, of course, like uh, you know, Beavis and Butthead, South Park, and whatnot—they're all there. So, I think even in even in New Zealand, like a lot of these kids, like they grow up watching all of these anime works jumbled up together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you go from South Park to Dragon Ball, and then you go back to something local, Samurai Jack or whatever. Yeah, and then so like if you watch all of them as a kid, right? In your mind, they're all cartoons. And, you know, especially, like, your parents who are trying to get you to stop watching TV, they're all cartoons, right? Like, you know, just the way, like, my mother would say every console, would call every console in the house a Game Boy. She'd, like, point at the PlayStation and say, hey, like, switch off the Game Boy. (laughs) Can you save yet? Like, hurry up and go to sleep. That sounds like something my parents would say, too. Um... (laughs) Well, I guess even before we move on to our uh, interview questions, you know, just just while we're kind of talking about uh, the kind of stuff we grew up on, uh, I kind of want to know what your experience with uh, manga has been up to this point, just uh, just kind of growing up on it in general. And, uh, you know, basically how you got into manga and, you know, what about manga and comics in general? Like, what about the medium like captivates you? Yeah, so um, I'm the older of two brothers. I have a younger brother. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm the child of uh, first-generation immigrants. And so my parents, my parents actually never forced Japanese on us. We spoke English. I spoke English. We had a live-in, uh, live-in nanny because both of my parents were uh, working all the time. So um, uh, with my nanny, like, you know, we spoke English. And with my younger brother, I'd speak English. But uh, Pokemon, the game came out. And uh, the Japanese version was available. And I had, I think back then, like, I had like a Japanese Game Boy, Game Boy Color that my parents got me for my birthday. And I think my parents assumed that, you know, it can only play Japanese games. So they bought like a Japanese Pokemon Blue. And uh, obviously, I had no clue what was written on the screen. I spoke at home, uh, I spoke infant Japanese to my parents at home. But uh, that was like, you know, like, kick in the backside like okay you really gotta learn this language so i told my parents like hey mom dad like i want to learn japanese i want to play pokemon (laughs) and so they bought me this like massive um like hiragana and katakana like uh sheet you know um and they stuck it on the toilet so every time i'd go uh, use the bathroom or every time i'm like sitting in the bath like i'd read out each of the you know 50 plus characters right in hiragana and katakana and that's how i kind of like learn how to read the Japanese alphabet. And then um, after that, like the good thing about Nintendo is like they don't use uh, kanji, the Chinese characters in uh, games like Pokemon that are aimed for kids. So like as long as I knew how to read Hiragana and Katakana, like I was able to read uh, almost everything on the screen. So that's kind of, that was how I actually began to learn Japanese. And after that, uh, my parents realized, oh, wow, it's like all we have to do is like keep him motivated <laughs> and then he'll learn the language yeah uh my my mother is a polyglot like she speaks like eight different languages wow 
Yeah, and like for each of these languages, like the the you know there were certain like factors of motivation that motivated her to learn it. Like you can never tell someone to just learn a language, right? They always there there always needs to be some sort of incentive for them to learn. And so I guess my mother quickly realized like, oh wow, like games are a good way for you know on to learn Japanese. And so then they started you know I'm asking grandparents to like record videos. Of uh, anime shows, like yeah, like Ampaman, Doraemon, uh, you know those um Sentai ran- Rangers. Yeah, the Super Sentai shows. Yeah, yeah, Super Sentai shows, Kamen Rider, Beyblade, like whatever they could uh, record. Like they would send like you know boxes and boxes of these stuff, and I'd watch it like every day. <laughs> and so that's how I practiced my Japanese listening, you know, my vocabulary. And then uh, as a kid, uh, my dad started every month after work. Um. Uh, he'd come home with um a comic book called a uh, Koro Koro comic. Yeah, mm. yeah. I don't think Koro Koro comic is very popular. Uh, it isn't a brand people would recognize overseas. However, the Pokemon Adventures manga is uh, very popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it's called yeah. something else over in Japan, isn't it? Uh, Pokemon special, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 the um the the comedy one, right? No, that that is a no. I'm like the one uh, drawn or written by uh, uh, Hidenori Kasaka. Oh, and- like uh, oh yeah 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 yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah yeah. Um, the sharp edged face one. Yeah yeah. Because no, like the one in Koro Koro comic had like a really really comedic spin. On yeah, Pokemon. The, the comedic one has not was never put made available over here. But like yeah, that one's been going just as long over twenty years as well. I know. Yeah, like I I grew up reading that and I absolutely loved. It. I think like I don't know the English name of the Pokemon, but I think like Cla- Claire Fairy. Uh, yeah, Clefairy. Yeah, I know. I've heard like that's one of the funniest characters in that series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Clefairy is the main character. Yeah, and he's just <laughs> absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So that's the thing. Um. In so in Japan, right? Um. We actually have these uh magazines called like uh Shogaku Ichinense. That means like um elementary school first grader. Like it's this. It's literally called Elementary School First Grader. It's a monthly magazine, and they have like manga aimed towards first graders in elementary school, right? And then you have Shogaku Ichinense, Shogaku Ninense, Shogaku Sanense, right? So like elementary first grader, second grader, third grader, and they have different mangas geared for each year level. And after that, you have Koro Koro Comic, which is that kind of like all right, like all elementary school kids kind of thing. So uh, for example, like. Manga versions of like Beyblade were in Koro Koro comic. Like some of the most hilarious, uh, like I don't know, one of the first mangas I read called uh, Crockett. That was in there. Dangerous G-san. Like you know, these are all of these um comics that probably never come across to the West. <laughs> I feel like in America, like your first manga or a, a lot of people's first manga is most likely gonna be like Naruto, One Piece. Uh, you know, your your weekly shonen jumps. Actually, one of my first uh, manga I ever read as a kid was actually the Pokemon Adventures comics, the Pokemon oh, okay, okay. manga that they brought over here, like that, and then Electric Tale of Pikachu and uh, Magical Pokemon Journey. Like, there's all sorts of different Pokemon comics they brought over back in the day. But 
Yeah, some of those Koro Koro comics uh, series, they do bring over here, mainly the video game related ones. Like, uh, there's a Splatoon one that's available over here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I think actually even Croquet, it seems like Viz licensed it for a little bit. But I haven't, I had never seen it around, but at least according to the Wikipedia page. Like, Croquet was made into this, like, Game Boy game, which, like, I played the shit out of. Like, it was so good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, I mean, I started off with um, Koro Koro Comic. And so, I guess, like, uh, you know, I mean, like, let's be real. Like, a lot of um, uh, foreigners, like, you know, their entry into manga are through scans. So, that means uh, access to the internet, right? So, when you have, like, independent access to, you know, a computer and uh, independent access to the internet without parental supervision like you know like you're maybe like around 12 ish and older maybe like around middle school maybe now kids with smartphones might have a younger barrier to entry but you know like yeah most like like, you know around the start of puberty is when you probably have access to the computer and that's probably when a lot of kids start reading scans right so that means, like, when they access the website, you look through the top ranking things, and the first thing you read are One Piece, Naruto, Bleach, uh, you know, Jojo, like, works like that. So in, in Western society, like, the beginning of manga often starts with Shonen Jump, whereas in Japan, like, you can read, like, I, mean, I, I used to read a lot of Doraemon comics, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd be reading, you know, when I was a single digit in terms of age, like 10 and under, right? I'll be Doraemon, Korokoro Comics, Shogakusei Ichinen, Shogaku Ichinensei Comics, and so on, yeah. And then, yeah, eventually when you start hitting, just when you start hitting the double digits, um, 10 years old and so on, yeah, like, you naturally make that transition to a shonen jump. Like, shonen, the word means young child, but youngster. Shonen means youngster, but not single digit. So we're talking like 10 and above. That's the that's like the age definition of what shonen would encompass. Yeah. So naturally around then, like most people make a transition to shonen jump. The only problem uh, for me, however, is that uh, they only shipped a certain number of um, shonen jump, weekly shonen jumps to New Zealand. Hmm. Like uh, they they had a they had a printer in Singapore or Indonesia either one, and uh, those ones would you know uh, would get distributed to um, you know many different Southeast Asian countries because uh, you know there's a lot of Japanese diaspora spread out in Southeast Asia because of work. So like Toyota has a large presence in Thailand. Yeah, I think Thailand's Japanese community is like one of the biggest in the world. So. I guess, like, thousands of these, like, Korokoro comics and Shonen Jump, like, every week, every month are shipped to uh, Japanese department stores in Thailand. Uh, Even in places like uh, Malaysia, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Penang, there's a big Japanese population. So they ship these books there. Singapore, and uh, I guess Sydney. And uh, in Auckland, where I was from, in New Zealand, like, you know, yeah, you know, there there were some Japanese families there. So, but they'd only ever send, like, I don't know, maybe like 10 weekly shonen jumps, right? And then uh, people would pick it up quickly and that's it, it's gone. <laughs> mm. 
Very low supply, but still a lot of demand. <laughs> yeah, and um, so I wasn't actually able to read these um, Shonen Jumps, uh, weekly Shonen Jumps, uh, in magazine form as a kid growing up. But uh, lucky for me, like my, my father loves uh, manga as well. And um, my father's friends also love manga. So uh, everyone had like a library at home. And um, we always bought a lot of physicals. They kept like our my I mean my bedroom is my entire wall is like manga, right? <laughs> and so yeah, we would just buy and read all of these. Um, lend it to each other and whatnot. And so I kind of went from Koro Koro comic straight to Golgo Thirteen. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because uh, my 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 father's friend was like, yo, like Golgo Thirteen is like the most amazing uh, manga series. Like you should read it. And I remember, like, he lent me, like, 120 Tankobon books of Golga 13. Wow, that's a good chunk of Golga. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my parents were like, oh, yeah, okay, this is your summer holiday project. <laughs> and I remember, like, spending, like, a month reading through 120 of these. Like, I read through all of them. Yeah. Wow. And obviously, it's a huge jump in Japanese from, uh, you know, Pokemon Adventures to uh, Elite Sniper Assassin. <laughs> I, I can only imagine that uh, the reading level there was uh, significantly different. <laughs> yeah, so like I remember, like you know, I'd, I'd go to mom and be like, "Hey, mom, like, what does this mean?" You know, I'd do that like every page. You know, like I mean, every panel, like there'd be like five words I wouldn't know. And my mom just got sick of me. It's like, okay, here's a dictionary. If you don't know a word, look it up. And like, you know, because I was a kid, I was like 12, you know, trying to understand things that are happening in Golgo, right? Because this is like, Golgo's like black mirror level level of political espionage and whatnot. Probably a lot of complex kanji uh, and concepts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very, you know, like military lingo and so on, you know. And so it's like, I mean, yeah, like, you know, if you play, you know, Call of Duty or whatever, yeah, there's some military lingo you understand, but. I wouldn't know it in Japanese, right? So I'd open a dictionary and some words just simply didn't exist because they were like fantasy words. And then I'd ask my, you know, finally, if I couldn't even find anything on the, uh, anything on the dictionary, like I'd finally ask my parents and they'd be like, oh, I don't know. What, what does it mean? <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I went from, yeah, Koro Koro comic to Gogo 13 and then, um, uh, I had a Japanese teacher in New Zealand. I, I went to supplementary lessons to learn Japanese as well. And then uh, my teacher there had, whew, he had an entire, he had every single works by uh, Tezuka Osamu. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, like, we had like a physical library of Tezuka Osamu and, um, and Death Note. Yeah. So Death Note was actually the first introduction uh, for me for Shonen Jump. Wow. What, a, what an introduction. <laughs> And actually, no, Naruto, I read Naruto in my cousin's house, but yeah, uh, the first full series I completed was um, Death Note, uh, at, you know, my, my teacher lent me, yeah. And yeah, for pretty much the next 10 years, like, he would always, like, lend me all of his manga, and um, yeah, like, I could borrow manga off him for 10 years, and I'd still, I, I still never ran out, like, that's how much <laughs> books he had. That's awesome. I'm insanely jealous. <laughs> how many of Tezuka's works have you been able to read? Were you able to get through all of them? Yeah, pr pretty much. Well, like uh, Ribbon, Ribbon, uh, Blackjack. I read all of Blackjack. Uh, 
was it Astro Boy? Astro Boy, yeah, the English name. Astro yeah. Boy. Um, Hinotori, um, the, the Phoenix one? Phoenix, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, Phoenix one. Uh, I don't know the English name, like the, the Hitler one. Oh, yeah, Message to Adolf. Uh, Adolf. Message to Adolf, yeah, that one, yeah. And um, naturally, like, after Blackjack, um, my teacher uh, collected all of um, Saito's work, like, um, uh, Say Hello to Blackjack. Say hello to Blackjack, uh, Umizaru, right? And um, uh, Tokko Tainishima, like um, the Kamikaze pilot story. So uh, I forgot the mangaka's name. I think it's like Sato or something, or Saito or something. But yeah, say hello. I was going to say, are we talking Takao Saito or? No, Saito Takao is Gogo 13, right? Yeah. yeah that, that's what I thought you meant at first. Eijiro Sato. Oh, Eijiro Sato. Yeah, Sato Eijiro. He's from Hiroshima. Yeah. But uh, he wrote the series Say Hello to Blackjack. And that series is absolutely amazing and ridiculously difficult to read as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Because um, it's just medical terminology, one after the other. And it touched upon politics and cultural issues. And it was, uh, it's, it's to this day, one of my favorite mangas. Like, uh, it, it was really one of those mangas that really changed my outlook on manga. Mm. Like, because up until then, you know, I was reading Golgo, I was reading Naruto, you know, uh, Death Note. And it's like, oh, these are really fun. These are really fun. And, you know, I, I, get, I get absorbed and sucked into this fantasy world. And then I read Say Hello to Blackjack, and then you're thrust into the reality. Yeah, I mean, have you guys read Say Hello to Blackjack? No, that's never been localized. But I actually got the name of the author wrong. The author's name is Shuho Sato. The The character's name was Eijiro Saito. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. He's a really funny guy. Um, He was so sick and tired of uh big publishers, like, screwing him over. <laughs> and he was so, like, pissed off at foreign fans scanlating his works that he literally made his own free-to-read website. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, God, like... uh. I, I forgot the name, yeah, but um, he has this uh, website where you can read all of his uh, localized works for free. That's a that's a very interesting model uh, for the future. But yeah, like he gets volunteer translators to translate his works, and then he makes it available um, to read. So I don't know if "Say Hello to Blackjack" is on there, but if it is, like I definitely recommend you read it. Like it that had a very explosive entry into Japanese manga culture as well because it touched up on a lot of subjects that Japanese publishers would never, uh, not never, but like wouldn't recommend artists to do. Yeah, like for example, there was some um, story about this mother who was expecting twins, but it turns out that one of the child was diagnosed with uh, Down syndrome. And because the mother's body was very weak, um, they would have had to put down one of the kids in order for the other to survive. Yeah, and then the father was adamant, like, oh, Down syndrome children are, you know, they're a waste on society. Like, uh, you know, um, it's, you know, like, uh, like we should just, we should just uh, abort the Down syndrome one and leave the healthy kid. And then uh, a naive doctor's like, no, like, how can you say that? They're both like, they're both real children, you know? And this kind of thing, um, it's really, it's, it's, the message is very transparent even now. Like, for example, now in, in the, the world in, we live in now, like, you know, saying something like, oh, like um, Down syndrome children are worth less than able-bodied children. Like that, that is blasphemous. Like you can never, ever say that, right? 
and in this in this manga like they touched upon that and then they uh they also kind of like uh touched upon this part of how like real families growing up with children with these conditions and they also touched upon how like the financial burdens it placed on the families and how you know like a lot of the things they had to do a lot of the discrimination the children uh go through even after becoming adults and so on and then you know finally the 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 mother the expecting mother's husband like tells the doctor like you know you talk about justice and you talk about righteousness but you're not going to be the one raising this child like you know like it make, it makes you feel good right now to say you know that all people are born equal but in reality like we're going to be the parents that are going to have to raise these kids and long after you're finished with your like a uh, you know residency at this hospital and a lot of these kind of messages within that manga i thought were very very interesting um so actually uh i i found it so Say Hello to Blackjack is actually available on Manga.club under the title Give My Regards to Blackjack. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so if you're, if you're a member of that site, uh, you can pretty much read all of it. Uh, all 12 volumes are up on that site. Which, um, Manga.club is a site I need to go to more often because they have a lot of stuff on there. Yeah, this is... Oh, yeah, yeah, this is the one, yeah. Um... Yeah, manga.club. I think this is the website that's run by uh Sato Shuzo. Mm. Is it? Yeah, uh is it? I thought his site was manga on web. Manga on web. Okay. Oh no, sorry. This is run by Toriko. Okay, yeah, it's a different one. But yeah, the Sato Shuzo uh I think ha- used to have or has his own website where he um but this was uh for Japanese as well, yeah. Making manga available free. Because uh, on on manga updates, it says that this series was uh, originally published on uh, Manga Reborn. I never heard of that publisher. But yeah, no, definitely. Um, I really, really recommend this um manga. Like that's the that, yeah. That, 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 that was that was the important I... thing is that yeah. Uh, give my regards to Blackjack as it's localized. It is available in English for people to read. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do yeah. Do read it. It's not for everybody, but um, the arcs and the stories, like, ooh, yeah, they they touch on things like even things like um cancer treatment, right? You know, is it worth it keeping someone alive until the very end? You know, because uh, the amount of pain they go through with like chemotherapy and so on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I think I was like twelve or thirteen when I read this, and. I knew, I knew, um, you know, relatives and so on who were going through that very same chemotherapy procedure, and then, you know, I I got to learn in a way, like, wow, like these are the kind of decisions that they had to make. Oh, now it explains why, like, Auntie suddenly lost all her hair, things like that. It was, um, it was very, very eye-opening, and that's when I kind of learned, like, oh wow, like manga has this um function to educate, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I definitely appreciate manga that are also uh, educational. Yeah, and um, one of one of the reasons why my parents, like, instead of, like, directly teaching me Japanese, you know, they just decided to throw a bunch of comic books my way was, um, I grew up in New Zealand, so I didn't have a childhood in Japan, right? But manga was one of the, manga was like a window into what kids my age were going through. So, like, if I read uh, like that's why as, as a kid actually I actually read way more shoujo manga than I did shonen 
because um shonen like ends up becoming the same thing you know <laughs> it's like yeah you find your mates you uh, band together and then you go beat one adversary after another and then you become like the king or the champion or you find the one piece or whatever <laughs> but with a uh, shoujo manga is also yeah very cookie cutter whatnot but uh, shoujo allowed me to see like oh wow like so this is what a middle school is like in japan oh this is what a high school is like in japan like you know a lot of things i actually never got to experience as a japanese person growing up overseas i got to mm. see as a yeah and so i remember like um reading uh, shoujo manga and you know like you know how they have these like valentine events uh, giving chocolates you know uh, like confessing in the um, shoebox and whatnot. <laughs> and I was so, so jealous of that. I was like, man, like, I want to live that life. I want to go to Japan. I, I want to get chocolates on Valentine's Day. You know? <laughs> yeah, I want to have a love letter put into my shoebox. And I actually told my parents, like, hey, mom, dad, like, I want to go to Japan and I want to go to a Japanese high school. And they were like, are you serious? It's like, yeah, I'm damn straight, you know, damn right I am. And I actually went to Japan, uh, and I took a test and everything. I did an interview, uh, blah blah blah, whatever, at this like international um, Japanese school in uh, in near Tokyo in Chiba, and I failed. <laughs> I didn't get in, and they just said like, "Oh, like um, you're not you're not Japanese enough." Yeah, because like uh, this school was actually uh, geared towards um, children of expats. So, like, uh, mostly kids in, like, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Thailand, where they actually have a Japanese elementary school, a Japanese middle school in those countries, and they grow, go through that system, and then they go back to Japan from high school, and then they, they can, like, uh, they can streamline straight into a Japanese high school with no problem, because they grew up speaking, uh, they grew up on the Japanese uh, curriculum and everything. Like, I just went to a local New Zealand school, so I had uh, none of that, you know, Japanese cultural manners. The only thing I knew was uh, things they touched upon in our manga and so on, yeah. And so the school rejected my application. They were like, oh, you're, you're too foreign. And uh, that was a, actually a big, big, big turning point in my life because uh, I was, uh, first of all, I was really, really hurt uh, because it kind of sucks to be rejected when you're Japanese. It's like, it's like, wait, I have Japanese blood. My parents are Japanese. I just grew up in New Zealand, but I'm not even allowed to be accepted into the education system of Japan. Like, damn, this, this really sucks. You know, and then, and then you read like these um, shoujo mangas about like, oh yes, this like foreign transfer student who doesn't speak a word of Japanese can like, you know, blend in to the classroom. And I'm like, yo, it's like, I at least speak Japanese. Like, why, why aren't I accepted at all? <laughs> So yeah, reality, uh, reality really hurt. <laughs> but um, that was actually a that was actually a very good uh, wake up call. Like um, you know, my mom was like, oh yeah, like you know, Japan's stupid. Like my parents like left Japan because they didn't like Japan. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, yeah, Japan. Like realistically, Japan is like just really dumb and has all these like weird uh, rules and so on. So yeah, don't don't bog yourself down with that. Instead, like. If you really like Japan, like, maybe you can live there in the future, but, you know, like, stay in school in New Zealand, like, you know, you have a lot of freedom in uh, pursuing your dreams and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, I took their advice and I stuck around in New Zealand. Yeah, eventually, I moved over to Japan and, and, you know, like, I started working in translation and so on. Yeah, but I think I made the right choice in uh, not going to Japan in high school. Nice. 
And then you did eventually, you know, come and live in Japan as an adult, so it all really worked out in the end. Yeah, life in Japan was great. Um, I stayed there for around six years. Yeah, and um, I had a lot of fun. I traveled. Like, so, yeah, that's one of the good things about being Japanese but not having lived in Japan was that I get to enjoy everything like a tourist. And so I actually went to pretty much every single prefecture in Japan. I'd go on trips for like for months at a time. Like, all right, I'm going to take three months off and just travel around uh, Hokkaido. I'm going to take uh, two months off and go to West Japan. You know, I had the luxury of doing that because, you know, um, well, with translation, like you're working off your computer, right? So just uh, t- take my laptop, pocket Wi-Fi, and I can, everywhere I go is um, a workplace, really. Just couch surf around the place. That's awesome. You really got to see a lot of the country. Like most people, most tourists wouldn't even be able to like go around everywhere in Japan. But you really took advantage of your time there. Yeah, I, I, uh, one of my, um, well, I don't know, achievements. Uh, Iridori Aqua's um translator Ed, uh, he always um blasts me for my dietary patterns. But um, I actually visited. 500 plus ramen restaurants in japan <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. i had over like 700 bowls of ramen and a lot of my translation work ended up becoming ramen wow yeah so like i i had this own like i had my own like i don't know like translation business just translating ramen menus for uh ramen chefs all over japan <laughs> that's that's really cool is is that how you got your start like professionally translating like what was like your first job professionally translating? <laughs> uh, um, yeah. <laughs> was, was, was that it? Um, oh no, no, no. Um, yeah, that's that's the funny thing. Like, uh, doors opened up for me in very, very weird places. Like, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, "Hey, like, you know, do you have any advice for people wanting to get into the industry?" And I'm like, I really can't give you advice. It's like. A lot of the times, it's like, you just happen to be there, you know? So, um, <laughs> the best advice I could give you is visit 500 ramen shops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then just go from there. Yeah, no lies. It's like, just go meet people. No, um, actually, uh, when I was in Japan, I was a teacher. Well, okay. Hmm. I, I used to work in the corporate world, but oh, God, it was um, absolutely horrible. <laughs> um, yeah, sounds soul crushing. Yeah, it was uh, very, very Japanese and uh, just not enjoyable at all and um i loved teaching um this is a really um interesting thing though um a lot of translators especially japanese to english translators uh they first end up in japan through the jet program or they go to japan through a teaching gig or something and as their japanese improves and they can then transition to become a translator like it's such a shame but like you meet a lot of translators who reject teaching it's like a part of their past they never want to disclose. And um, I've met fellow translators who look down on teachers. And they're like, oh, you're an English teacher? Or like sometimes when you're in a bar or something, you know, like with a bunch of foreigners, you know, like uh, being an Eikaiwa teacher is considered like the bottom of the barrel profession, right? And like, you know, translators uh, put themselves like above them. And they're like, oh, you're an English teacher? I'm actually a translator. And, you know, even higher than that, it's like, I'm a video game translator. Like, people like to flex <laughs> on um, others. But uh, I was always very open with my teaching career because I love, I, you know, I love teaching. I love um, talking to people. Um, 
helping people out and whatnot. So, you know, I did I did a lot of teaching and because I was younger and, you know, being a guy, um, a lot of my students were very open about themselves. And uh, this one dude um, I had, I taught him for five years, right? He ran brothels. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, he, he ran brothels and uh, he knew my background in um, corporate and he's like, hey, like, I want to target foreign customers. <laughs> like, could you help me out? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. So, I actually, uh, he took me to his brothel. And I had to look around. Um, I uh, sat down and I interviewed the, the, the girls, the working girls and so on. And um, I helped translate, like, his website. You know, I helped, like, translate signs inside the store. You know, so there's, a, there's some English menus and things like that. And uh, eventually, you know, like, uh, word of mouth, you know, he would tell his other buddies, like, yo, I know this, like, uh, you know, English teacher dude. Yeah, he can also translate. He speaks Japanese and English. Uh, he can also translate like um like our content, you know. A lot of these stuff, like you can't just go to any translator and be like, "Hey, man, can you translate this?" Like a lot of people don't want to handle like you know adult oriented items, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of found myself with this like niche market uh, where I was like the sole translator, and so I was based in like Nagoya, which is like in the middle of Japan, but like brothel owners from Osaka and Tokyo would ask me to go travel like hundreds of miles right to go to tokyo and osaka to you know uh, look around interview people and do translations and things like that so my transition career actually started in the sex industry Hmm, interesting yeah and um it was really interesting um (laughs) you know uh yeah it was a it was a really really fun job and eventually then um like one of the brothel owners was also very well connected with like um the local government yeah, local government activities. And so I guess like brothel owners have to comply with a lot of things, uh, you know, uh, with the police and so on. So yeah. one day the police came and like, hey, man, can you like translate some documents for foreigners? And so I started like doing translation work with the police as well, with local governments. And by the time I realized that I was doing a lot of translation work and it really, really spread and mostly, a lot of the works came from my students, really. Like, I had doctors as students, like, hey, man, can you translate this medical report? You know, can you translate, like, this diagnosis, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, yeah, that's, um, I was based in Nagoya, so that's how I ended up working for, um, I, I ended up doing translation for companies like um, Toyota and Mitsubishi, Kawasaki, Boeing. Yeah, so uh, I just, like, you know, as, as much as translators, like, knock on um, teaching, like, I wouldn't be a translator without teaching. You made so many amazing connections and have been, and you have had so many incredibly different and like big clients. That's really incredible. Yeah. And, um, this, that's the thing. Like, um, I, I I won't name the names, but, uh, when I was a teacher, because I understood both Japanese and English and, you know, being Japanese, I understood both foreign culture and Japanese culture. I had a lot of um, lessons with uh, VIP students. Um, these were private lessons, like in a in a separated private booth. So, like, uh, like you know, like these super VIPs would like come to the school through like a private elevator at the back. Like they won't meet anybody. Like they'll just come straight to me, and we'd have a lesson. Like it's this kind of environment. Hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, like uh, I taught uh, porn stars, porn stars. I I'd have lessons with um you know, popular mangaka, uh, porn stars, like 
uh, you know, sports professionals and like very like actors, like things like that. Yeah. Uh, company CEOs and whatnot. And in an English lesson, like uh, the moment you switch languages, Japanese people become very, very friendly. Like uh, when they're speaking Japanese, like they have, you know, they have a, they have a face they have to keep. Oh, I am a, you know, I am a professional. I am a boss. I, I am a CEO, whatever. But when they speak English, like the power balance changes, like I become the teacher, they become the student. And so, like, I can ask them questions like, um, hey, man, like, uh, what are you doing on the weekends? And, like, you know, in, in, in Japanese culture, you'd probably never ask the CEO of your company, like, hey, man, what do you do on your weekends? But through this English lesson, like, I can just ask them, like, hey, man, like, what do you do on your weekend? And the guy's like, um, yeah, I'll, I'll watch, I'm going to watch some, like, reruns of Gundam. And I'm like, what? You like <laughs> Gundam? <laughs> yeah. And, like, we just have, like, you know, just chats. We just chat all the time. And then uh, that's how I ended up learning a lot about the industry I'm currently in. Like um, I had like manga, uh, you know, like people from manga publishing companies as my students. And, you know, I also taught the wife of a very, very, very famous Japanese mangaka, you know, for six years. And, you know, she'd tell me a lot about the ins and outs of the industry and so on. And that's actually, uh, that's actually you know, where I learned a lot of my uh, knowledge about our industry so far. So uh, yeah, I mean, teaching is you can't you can't look down on it. Um, I wouldn't be where I am without it. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh, and after that, yeah, like through that, you know, like once you um get close to them, like you know, every now and then they're like, hey man, like you're available for a translation job, you're available for an interpretation job, like blah blah blah. And hey man, you want to come to my company and teach my like you know subordinates, you know, like a lot of doors opened up just just by knowing people, being friendly, and so on, yeah. So, uh, that was pretty cool. Like, um, by the end of my time in Japan, um, I was actually a university lecturer, where I lectured about my, my like, literally the name of my class was called, uh, was it, vid- wait, uh, Japanese culture, uh, Japanese otaku culture, like, video games, anime, and manga. Oh. So, uh, college students can, you know, take my class for a semester, learn about those three subjects and you know they get credited it was a it was a really interesting class yeah i mean i got that job i got that job through like drinking at a bar (laughs) yeah i was drinking at a bar and like explaining to my mate about like you know manga culture and so on and then the guy who was sitting like behind us like tapped me on the shoulder hey man like you're very like knowledgeable about this blah 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 and then uh turned out uh he was a he was a professor at the university and then, uh, yeah, she said, hey, man, do you want to come in as a lecturer? And I went in. The class was ridiculously popular because, you know, you get to screw around, read manga, <laughs> watch anime, and get credits, right? Yeah, so I remember because, like, the classroom capacity was 20 students per class. And so, like, yeah, we had to have 20 students per class, but I had 180 people apply. And they're like, oh, please choose 20 students from this. It's like, I can't do it. Like, just do a random number generator. And then that's how I chose my 20 <laughs> students. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Wow. And then they ended up like increasing the number of classes. So I started off with like one class, but by the end of the time, I had like three classes. Yeah. That was uh, pretty chill. I mean, um, you know, like I was once like super hungover and I forgot to make the um, uh, final exam. <laughs> oh my God. So uh, I messaged some of the students like, yo, if you guys have a Nintendo Switch, please bring it to class. <laughs> <laughs> And we all like connected it together and played like Mario Kart. And it's like, all right, if you guys like, 
Yeah, so it's like, you know, they race like four or eight at a time. It's like, all right, the top two students can pass with like the distinguished credits. So like, I'll give you guys like A plus. It's like A, B. And they're like, sir, like if we, if we come last, do we fail? It's like, maybe. Oh my gosh, everything rides on Mario Kart. That's amazing. God forbid you pick Rainbow Road or whatever as your, as like your final stage. Yeah. Man, the person who got the blue shell really got a lucky break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I did, like, those kind of stuff, right? And, you know, it, it's kind of weird because, like, um, you know, I was teaching at a university and at the same time, like, I was also being involved in, like, you know, like, yeah, the sex industry. But also, I kind of slowly toned down the sex industry stuff and um, I kind of automated it, yeah. Like, um, I, I started letting all the owners, like, okay, this is, like, the template menu you should use and just, like, swap in the prices and whatnot. And I just gave them a template. So I didn't have to translate it all the time. And they just like, they just pay me for like the templates and they just reuse it, right? <laughs> I suppose there are a lot of repetitive phrases that you could like refer to. But also I imagine that your experience in the sex industry and in manga culture really came in handy when you kind of combine both those worlds when uh, publishing erotic dojinshi through Iridori. Oh, yeah, kind of, um, yes and no, because, like, real sex industry and doujinshi, like, isn't as close as, um, as you expect. Yeah, but, like, I mean, it's always a nice, uh, conversation starter, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, um, one of the, um, good skills, I guess, um, I have is, um, I get to talk to, uh, Japanese authors directly in Japanese, right? And then, um, they get to know me, like, we have a good laugh, we often, we often go out, or we often go out to eat ramen together, right? <laughs> yeah because uh i mean you know most mangakas love ramen like it's very rare to find somebody who doesn't and then you know i recommend a ramen store they recommend a ramen store we, we, we meet up have a chat you know exchange uh business cards and so on and yeah and they're like all right like let's do this together it's kind of a interesting thing yeah so yeah that's like my whole um origin thing as a translator yeah eventually like i kind of transitioned from um business and technical stuff to video games someone reached out to me. I think it was like a sex industry related guy who had a buddy who was a game dev and he was looking for, uh, you know, he was looking to get his work localized into English. And then that person reached out to me and then he recommended me to somebody else. And yeah, like, um, and that's kind of been my experience with video games. So yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. That's really cool. What are some of the games that you've worked on? Um, a lot of the bigger titles, like that, uh, people would know. I cannot speak about. Um, oh, okay. I'm currently working on a very anticipated game uh, coming out next year, but again, Ooh. cannot name anything. Something to look forward to. All right. Yeah, but um, I love working uh with indie games. So um, I'm part of a, a video game localization group called the Warlocks. Yeah, they kind of um uh like lock for localization. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, with Warlocks, like we localize a lot of um, uh, indie games into like seventeen different languages now. Wow, yeah, seventeen, yeah. And so yeah, like we work, um, we work with the indie game devs directly, and th that's that's one of the things. Um, just just recently, the past couple of years, um, I've come to appreciate is working with the creator directly is something I value a lot. When you work uh for big video game companies, um, it's cool. Like, hey, like I translate for. Uh, I don't know, Bandai Namco, I translate for Square Enix, you know, like, it's it's really cool, but 
For example, most most localization gigs come unless you're hired in-house, right? You work for a translation agency, so you never actually meet or speak to the uh, to the creators of the game. So, like as a translator, you have um, a project manager above you, who then has a couple of other people above them, and then the person at the top of the totem pole has a direct connection to the localization manager of the game company. Right, who then relays your question to one of the devs. So there's like a lot of people in between. So that often means uh, you can't ask questions directly to the creator of the games. And that really, really um, limits uh, the creative freedom that you have, right? Because um, it's very difficult to discern the intent of the game creator when there's like four or five people in between you and said creator. But with indie game devs, like, you know, because we work with them directly, like, often we're all in, like, one uh, Discord chat. And, you know, I can ping the dev anytime I want. I'm like, hey, mate, like, uh, this sentence, like, what did you mean by it? Or, like, okay, like, when I translate this sentence into Japanese, like, do you want me to have the nuance like this or like this? And, you know, I can call them up anytime, message them anytime. It's a lot more flexible. Uh, I just came to realize, like, oh, wow, like, indie games are, like, really fun. Because uh, you feel you feel like you're you're working directly with the dev to promote uh, and localize their product in another language, right? Whereas um, when you're working on big video games, like you're like an ex- very tail end of that creation process, and you're not also di- you're not directly linked. So it kind of feels like yeah, it's like when the game eventually does come out, it's like yeah, like I had a hand in that, but it doesn't feel like you had a you know big part in it. Yeah, the direct relationship you have with the creator is abstracted more as to a lot more layers of different people involved in the process. Yeah, and um, you know, one of the important things, and um, I guess this kind of relates to the whole like uh, Crunchyroll thing we talked about too before. Like indie game devs always credit you. Hmm, that's true. Translation agencies uh tend not to credit uh translators. Yeah, that's been a conversation that. You know, we've had in the manga community, like generally translators are credited in the books, but it's been very difficult to find translation credits, you know, when people are writing up reviews or even just listings on places where books are sold, like Amazon. It can be very difficult to find that information. So in recent, uh, just in the recent year, I feel like people have been more conscious and been making more of an effort to credit, hey, here are all the people who have been involved in this localization. We're just going to credit it all so that information is there for people to find and to acknowledge, which I think is a great, great trend. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that's the thing. Like, there, like for, for a translation agency, like, you know, for better or for worse, like, there's, like, there's an incentive to not credit translators because... When translators are credited um, uh, on their resume, they have a lot of big names written there, right? So that allows translators to negotiate. It gives them a higher bargaining power. But if every translator has their mouth shut, like zipped shut with uh, non-disclosure agreements, and they're not credited, it allows the industry to like push down the rate of what they really should be getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a. It's kind of a. Yeah, tactic. Exploitative, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, so, like, you know, I, I came from there. Um, there's a lot of things that I'm not credited in. 
Uh, for me, like it's kind of fine. Like uh, Japan is just like, uh, especially from uh, video games when we translate from English to Japanese. Uh, there's this really interesting situation where if you don't want to be credited, if you don't get credited, you get paid a bit more. So it's like you can you can get a higher paycheck, and in exchange, you don't get credited. And I'm like, yeah, sure, man. Like I can do with the money. Like you know, crediting it wasn't really it wasn't like exactly important for me. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but um, you know, now with like Irizori Comics, like we make sure everyone you know is always accredited. Uh, but you know the nature of the doujinshi we deal in are you know adult erotic doujinshi. So oh, I have my real name on there. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting because like everyone has a nickname uh, when they get when they get credited, but uh, no one bothered to ask me. So <laughs> by, by the time like by the time we started releasing, it's like my name is on there like in full, and everybody else has these you know like nicknames. I'm like yo, like how come no one ever asked me? And they're like, oh, who cares? It's like, you know. Yeah, so, um, yeah, now a lot of people have um, nicknames and stuff. But um, every now and then, like, you know, uh, some of our staff, you know, uh, uh, they apply to different places. Uh, you know, the official manga translation industry is actually a lot smaller than we think. Like, a lot of editors work at multiple different publishers, right? Yeah, so sometimes, like, some of my editors are like, oh, hey, on, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to apply to this place. You know, can you write a recommendation letter for me? Or like, can you vouch for my abilities? I'm like, yeah, sure, man. Like, you know, and uh, you know, I make sure to write in the letter like, okay, so and so, so and so's uh, nickname uh, is this. Like, yeah, so he's he's worked on like you know like twenty plus doujinshi's for us. He's worked on like forty plus doujinshi's for us, and every name that is credited as this is this guy, you know, or this person. So you know, I think it's very important um to credit, and it's very you know like give credit where it's due. Definitely, especially because letterers, editors, they do such an important job, too. That's worth acknowledging. Uh, when I was writing my reviews of the Iridora Aqua lines, like, I was very impressed with a lot of the lettering choices made. And I wanted to write about that, acknowledge that, man, they did such a good job, like, capturing this feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially in um, our case, like, uh, Iridori Comics, like, uh, our editors, like, hand draw every sound effect. Yeah, and like I, I could notice, and I love the effort, and I love the style that they used. Like especially for, uh, Raincoat Kids, which oh, you know originally yeah. like, uh, Yomachi Mami, like that's a analog drawn with like ink and paper manga, and like so the artist probably had also done those sound effects originally by hand too, and so for in the translation that also to be done like it really fits in well and it feels natural to the art and especially because like it does such interesting things towards the back half of that comic with the way the lettering is distorted like i really really love that touch yeah so uh Raincoat kids is done by um sinful crow our editor yeah like he went through like a lot of the different fonts that he has and like you know he'd always like you know draw them out and everything it's it's incredible like you know like um, I have zero artistic skills, like, in terms of, like, <laughs> drawing. Like, yeah, like, you know, like, stick figures, like, maximum I can do. So, like, some of the magic these guys do, man, like, oh, it's absolutely crazy. See, for Raincoat Kids in particular, it, it could not have been easy to replicate the um, the kind of wobbly text uh, speech bubble effects that kind of show up near, like, the latter half of that uh, title. Yeah. 
Yeah, Sin Sin did a really really good job, and um even like uh we all we always um send a artist artist review copy uh before we release anything like um you know so our process is like you know uh, translation editing QC and then before we uh release anything we first send the artist approval copy to the artist and then the artist would check through it. I mean most of them like, don't understand the English side, but uh you know they read through the entire thing. And um, almost all the time, the comments we get are like, wow, it's like, you guys really, like, did the sound effects, like, you know, one for one. We're like, yeah, it's like, um, you know, because we want to give that experience to, uh, you know, our readers. Like, you know, I mean, I read some, like, officially localized uh, manga, like, here and there. And it it always felt kind of weird when, like, some sound effects are localized and others aren't. Yeah, it really depends on the publisher, too. Yeah, like you can just see like this line of like Japanese, and I'm like, wait, like, <laughs> I, I, how do how do foreigners know like what this means? You know, so uh, it, it always felt like kind of weird uh, for me. Yeah, so uh, but I guess I understand because like uh, DC comics and like Marvel comics, when it comes to um uh, Japan, like you know, like the sound effects like pow, kapow, like those are left in English. So it's like I guess it does make sense. Yeah, but I guess yeah, like with the it's like we make sure like the sound effects too are like uh localized and you know that it's not always easy um like you guys read um uh of love uh was of, yeah. of love um of love girls and money yeah girls and money oh god i i always get the title like <laughs> mixed up yeah no i i once called it like oh yeah of loves uh money and glory <laughs> or rather i guess the title is of girls love and money Got the love and the girls misplaced in yeah, no, order. Like, I've I've never I've never nailed the title correctly, and uh, Ed always uh, ribs me off for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like with that work, um, you know, Ed decided to localize the currency into dollars. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, we posted uh, we posted like uh, snapshots of um that scene onto um Twitter, and I remember like I I, re- I read someone like uh, retweeting and said like, oh my god, like these guys like localize currency, like why would they do that? In a very, like, condescending tone, right? Ugh, localization, at it again. <laughs> the, the next thing you know, they'll be changing uh, rice balls to jelly donuts. Oh, oh god. I, I saw that was like, what, Xenoblade 2 or something? No, we were talking about Pokemon. Oh, Pokemon. <laughs> the oh, dub. okay, okay. No, like, yeah. th- that, was a pretty, that was a pretty infamous, like, thing back in the day. Yeah, when the early localization of uh, Pokemon, they would very much try to erase anything Japanese uh, okay. from the show. I think you can still find that clip on YouTube where Brock is very much trying to emphasize that what he is holding is a jelly donut. Okay. <laughs> the funniest one is when they literally digi-painted a rice ball to be a sandwich. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was animated rolling down a hill, so they <laughs> animated this digi-painted sandwich over the rice ball. Oh, wow. Oh. Well, actually, um, uh, in my university lecture, I um, actually had uh, a lesson about the localization of um, Pokemon and Yokai Watch. I compared Pokemon, Yokai Watch, and Digimon, and I talked about how like the localization set those works apart. Yeah, no, it's kind of a a bit of a callback to that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Anyway, like going back to topic about the whole currency thing. Yeah, like um, you know, like yeah. I mean, every now and then you get the the the, the purists, you know, <laughs> quote 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 mark. Um, you know, purists who want like a literal translation of everything, and yeah, it's like. It depends on the media. Like, I mean, a lot of the erotic doujinshi we handle, yeah, you know, it's as literal as it gets, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, sex in English and Japanese, like, you know, eh, it doesn't change too much. 
but I guess with the more creative uh, mainstream manga, you know, there's a lot of uh, decisions that translators have to make that will definitely affect. Yeah, and um, one of the great things like Ed did with um of love, money, and girls was it? No, of girls, love, and money. Oh, of girls, love, the and money. Girls okay. comes first. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get that title right one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, with that one, like um, if you if if you're familiar with like the author Hiroyuki, right? Mm-hmm. He he is like Mr. Gag Manga. Oh yeah. And um the important thing about Japanese gag manga is like the witty comedy, right? Everything is real quick, like one panel apart is the bait. The bait and switch is like a panel apart or it's like on the very next page. Like everything is so quick. So your brain has to react to it very quickly, right? If we had 10,000 yen written out in full, 10,000 yen for a lot of like American readers, when you read that, it's like, hey, give me ten thousand yen. First of all, like you're gonna stop right there, and your brain has to like consider, like, wait, is ten thousand yen like a lot of money? Yeah, it'd be distracting if you don't right. know. I mean, like, if you know Japanese currency values, then yeah, sure, maybe you know that ten thousand yen is roughly a hundred dollars, right? But like, you know, you have countries like uh, like Vietnam. Right, one U.S. dollar is twenty thousand dong. Jeez. Yeah, but like you know, if somebody says, "Oh yeah, give me twenty thousand dong," you know, they're like, "Oh shit!" Like, am I giving like my life savings away? Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, and yeah, because in because one U.S. dollar is roughly twenty thousand dongs in Vietnam. If somebody says, "Oh yeah, like uh, you know, this is gonna cost you a million dongs," right? It might sound expensive, but it's actually not that expensive. You're talking like a couple of hundred dollars, right? So it's like it's very important, like for that quick reaction. That's why Ed said, "All right, hundred dollars, thirty bucks." You know, so the the wittiness, the quick wittiness of the joke, uh, remains. Like you don't, yeah. the reader doesn't yeah. stop and think. You know, we don't want them to stop and think. We want them to enjoy the joke. Like uh, the impact of the joke is not lost on them. Yeah. So you can keep the gag a minute pace, uh, like because Hiroyuki's comics, you know. There's like a punchline like at the end of every page or like even within the page are multiple jokes. You just want to be able to have the readers go, oh, yeah, I get that. I get that. I get that. And not have to slow down. Like comedy really is dependent on speed. So it's a very good choice. Yeah. Imagine like stand up comedy, like, I don't know, like watching Dave Chappelle or something and where you have to stop at each moment and think about the joke like that would be like that would kill all the momentum you know mm-hmm. and everything and the delivery yeah so it's um sometimes like you know uh with that with that work in particular like yeah we made a conscious or ed made a conscious decision to translate it into dollars and bucks so people you know so readers can uh un- understand like you know the joke and understand the joke in a way the author intended for it to be enjoyed, right? Yeah. So this is the very important thing. Like, sometimes, you know, people talk about, like, the intent of the creator, right? Hiroyuki's intent was not 10,000 yen. Hiroyuki's intent was for people to laugh and find enjoyment at that joke. So Ed's interpretation was, all right, then, in order for me to fully deliver this joke, you know, in the best way possible, I'm going to have to localize the yen sign to a dollar sign. And so that's what we went with, yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I well, you know, not think, it always does an amazing job, but yeah, like, uh, that's the outcome, yeah. 
Yeah, I think a good translation isn't so much focused on literally uh, translating text, but it's focused on recapturing what the reader's response would be reading it in a different language. Yeah, definitely. And I think like with when the audience is a bit older, like there's a lot more like freedom in doing so. Yeah, it's like um, I feel like with a uh, Shonen Jump and stuff, like people like religiously demand uh like the pure translation, right? Like word for word, literal translation. Yeah. When that when that's not that's not what you want at all. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from like misinformation of like what is a good translation and then this yeah. idea of word of God, which is a little bit misleading. It's kinda like when you see people online talk about animation solely by using like 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 screen caps that like don't necessarily look that great. In between traps of in between, screen traps of what are meant to be transitional images to help like the full beats of animation. You're only looking at one frame in an animated work, which is multiple frames together. That creates the animation. Like you're focusing too much on the minutia, not looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, it, it, people post screen caps and the people want to be like, look at how bad this animation is. Yeah, you can't criticize animation by posting a still image. I mean, like, uh, what was it? Uh, Ma- Manga Manga Plus, the Shonen Jump app, right? It's like uh, when uh, uh sh- what was it? Um, that uh, G- Gem- Gemini's box. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like whatever. Um, it it went under. Yeah, and um, all the One Piece stuff. And then I I, I saw on Twitter like everyone complaining like, oh, like Manga Plus is bad because they pronounce Zoro as Zolo <laughs> with like Z O L O. And, you know, like, I'm like, dude, like, you guys can't even pronounce 95% of Japanese names properly. And this, <laughs> this is the hill that you want to die on? Like, you know. I don't, I, I legitimate at this point, I legitimately don't understand people that get hung up on that. I really don't. And not not to go on a huge tangent, but that's, that's my problem with a lot of, uh, the translation discourse in the One Piece community, in in particular, where it's like that that's that's all anybody ever brings up is th- the names are different. That means the translation's bad. Essentially, that's what they that's what they equal as a as a bad translation in their eyes. And I'm just like, okay, sure, I guess it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I mean, um, look, uh, my favorite translation of Japanese to English, like manga or anime, is um, uh, Black Lagoon. Yeah, and I, I saw you tweet just a little while ago that Black Lagoon's like your favorite manga. Like, can you go into like what about even the translation specifically? Like, you really love about it. Black Lagoon. Well, not just Black Lagoon. Another one is called um Jormungand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very si- very similar in kind of vibe. Like that. That's the kind of um like stories I love. Yeah, mm-hmm. Black Lagoon, Jormungand, Marginal Operation. Like these like guns for hire you know kind of a scenario um but no like um if you i, I watched the um black lagoon and uh Yormangan animation uh originally in japanese and then i also had the opportunity to watch the dubs and wow the english ones are just so good <laughs> so good because um they're suited for a western audience like uh, the same could be said for a final fantasy 10 like uh you know you know the character riku riku in final fantasy 10 I haven't played Final Fantasy X. Okay, okay. So, like, Final Fantasy X, like, there's this character called Riku. Like, in Japanese, like, her voice is, like, super anime, like, 
high pitched, you know, like Oni-chan kind of voice, right? <laughs> but uh, in the English dub, they gave her this like sultry, like sexy older woman kind of voice, and it really matches her persona in um in English. So it's like uh, I I found that very very interesting how like just using a different voice actress can be very different, and that was uh, especially the case in um with Black Lagoon and Yorman Gun, like the voice casting. Was the voice actors' casting choices were perfect. Like every one of their voices were like perfectly done, and the the language used was a lot more like crass in the English version, like a lot more realistic. Uh, the truth is, J- the Japanese language doesn't have a lot of swear words. Japanese people, as a culture, like you know, in Japan, uh, in English, like you have your, you know, you have your f words and you have your different curse words, right? Uh, in Japan, like we don't really have a lot of words that are equivalent to the English, like "fuck." We don't have words like that. But Japanese bullying can, or Japanese bullying is horrible. Oh yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. horrible. Yeah, like um, you know, like kids kill themselves like every week because of bullying in school, and a lot of these things are. You know, like, I mean, you read the comments, like, when the news reports it, and it's just, it stabs you mentally. Like, they don't have, like, I mean, you know, in, in, I guess in Western culture, like, when you hate someone, they're like, oh, you know, you're a fucking idiot. And that's it. Like, you use these, like, pointed vocabulary, and then, like, that's it. Like, in Japanese, it's like, they use very normal vocabulary that you use in your daily life. But when strung upon together, the, the nuance of it is like, you know, you don't deserve to live. It's like you're just a waste of space. You know, like these kind of it really stabs you in the gut. That's the kind of a uh, cursing that Japanese people do. Yeah, it's very um. Yeah, it's like uh, it's 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 a slow damage over time poison kind of um bullying. And so that's why like works like um uh, Black Lagoon and Yorman Gun, where like guns are blazing and you know people are dying, kind of thing. A lot of that, uh, a lot of the emotion, especially the anger, doesn't necessarily portray well in the Japanese language. But uh, in English, uh, when they localize it into the English version, you know, they have cuss words and swear words like flying all over the place, and it feels very natural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the reasons why, like, I love the English dub of both Black Lagoon and Yormungan. It fits both those series very well. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, in English, we are very liberal with our profanity. So, especially <laughs> for a series uh, where characters are so crass, like in Black Lagoon, like it makes a ton of sense, and it, it's very fitting. It's part of the reasons why I really love uh, Panty and Stalking at Gardevoir a lot in English. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah. for such a profane series, like the excess of profanity in the English dub just makes it all the funnier. Right, exactly. And like, you know, it's realistic. Like, you know, people swear. People swear. So it's only natural that the media they consume reflect the language that's kind of used, right? Yeah. So it's like, in, in Japan, it's like, you know, the, the often the curse words that they use and the situation that they're in doesn't really match. And as a Japanese person, even watching the original Japanese version, it's like, hmm, it's like, I think I'd be more aggressive <laughs> if I was placed in that situation, but uh, interesting choice, you know. <laughs> yeah, I guess one instance of a translation that I saw Ed tweet about in terms of like a 
the Iridori stuff is like in two timing where there's towards the end of the book like a character is referring to doing etchy and he translated that literally as like sex just to get the meaning across more clearly so I do think like making like uh, liberal choices like that to kind of communicate more clearly like the intent of the scene or like emphasize it are very good translation decisions that add a whole lot of humor to the work. Yeah, like um, etchy is a very um hmm, problematic word in Japanese <laughs> because um. Yeah, like uh, it's actually it's actually the reason why a lot of um sexual harassment gets swept under the rug mm. is um you know uh you guys oh you guys are big Dragon Ball Z fans yeah, right yeah yeah Dragon yeah. Ball fans so like you know in the in the early years of Dragon Ball like uh, for example Goku like peeling up uh Bulma's skirt oh yeah we had a long conversation about that on our Dragon Ball episode right <laughs> and like um you know like um uh touching touching Chi Chi's crotch mm-hmm. uh um the um mutant know, like, Roshi of yeah Roshi's uh, puff puffs <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, putting his face in between boobs. Like, all of this, right, is included in the word ecchi. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you know, like, um, hmm, like, oh, God, I, if you say this, like, it feels like you're putting yourself in a trap. But um, those kind of um, depictions uh, in Dragon Ball, like, they're relatively harmless. But, of course, in modern values, they are s- forms of sexual harassment. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dude, you, you touch someone's crotch, like, you're going to go to jail, right? But uh, in Japan, like, they're able to put all of this in, under this umbrella word called ecchi. And just by putting it under this word called ecchi, like, they're able to, like, not mitigate it. Like, they're able to, like, um, somehow make it less potent. Right? Yeah. And so they can say that something is ecchi and something is not sexual. Like, they can separate that. So like um yeah this this word called ecchi like I personally like find it a very problematic word like even with like manga categorization right you can have a ecchi manga that is like borderline hentai and like you know sometimes ecchi manga has sex scenes and so on so like ecchi is like a very uh the definition of it can be like liberally applied yeah there's like a lot of broadness into how you can prescribe the term to uh, label different works, characterize. Yeah, them. like if you're based in Japan, you know, um, Japan is a, uh, you know, recently, um, women are speaking up about their uh, sexual harassment experiences and so on, and um, often like the defense a lot of their like male bosses use is like, oh no, I I didn't like, I didn't sexually harass her, I just did like slightly edgy things to her. So like in Japanese, in the Japanese language, sexual harassment. And doing etchy things are two separate things. In English, that shit won't fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't. I, I can't really think of too many equivalents we have of that kind of thing over here. Like, I mean, if you grope someone's ass in English, that's sexual harassment, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like trying to dismiss it as like, oh, I was just playing around. I was just not trying to be serious. But yeah, it's like I don't know. Like in in, in English, imagine saying like, oh, like I was just like. Being a bit feelsy, like, you know, I was just being a bit grabby and, like, you know, copping a feel. Like, yeah, imagine, like, the word copping a feel has its own, like, categorization. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, wow. That's the ridiculousness of the word ecchi in Japanese. Like, you know, people are literally on the internet like, oh no, like, um, I didn't sexually harass her. I just did, a, I just did something a bit ecchi. Like, bro, like, <laughs> that's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, that's the thing about ecchi. Like, um, ecchi can, like, encompass a lot of things. It could be sex and it could be cop in a feel. It could be like, uh, was it like um, stuffing your face in between titties? It could be, uh, you know, what Goku did, like peeling up a skirt or something. Like, Edgy has a lot of different things, yeah. Uh, so that's why, like, Ed made that decision. You know, like, I'm just going to call it sex yeah. for the impact. And I mean, in the context, that is, like, what they are talking about. Like, whether they're going to have, like, sex or not. Exactly, because like when some like in Japanese, when someone's like, "Oh yeah, let's do something edgy," it's like, "Wait, is that first base, second base, third base, or all the way?" <laughs> like, you can have anything within that, right? But by translating it into sex, like, boom, like the message is clear. Like, you know, it is going to be this and only this. Mm-hmm. But speaking of like terms that have like kind of nuanced meanings, doujinshi is also a word that might be misunderstood by international fans. And a lot of people think of doujinshi as purely erotic manga, hentai manga, as a lot of people colloquially call it in Western fandom. But that's, of course, not the case. I guess, uh, in your own words, how would you describe doujinshi as a term to people and what it refers to? Okay, so the word doujin. Doujin means self-published. Okay, so there's two types of manga. There's commercial manga. And doujinshi. So, uh, she at the end of doujinshi means a magazine. So, self-published magazine, self-published comic is doujinshi. Self-published music will be doujin music. Self-published video games will be doujin games. So, like, you can stick doujin onto in the front of uh, many things and it'll be self-published whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's kind of interesting. Um, so... Doujinshi is self-published, right? And most of the time, well, now the times are changing, so it's a little bit different. But uh, rewind the clock maybe 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, um, most mangaka were commercial mangaka, right? Most manga authors like worked under a publisher and they released commercial manga. And every now and then, they will release doujinshi on the side to, you know, for that little side hustle. And uh, what better way to draw hentai than to use pre-existing characters from famous franchises? Everybody, or not everybody, but like a lot of people dream about, you know, like the Rule 34 stuff. It's like, oh yeah, like what if my two favorite anime characters from this series were to start, you know, fucking. And then uh, these, a lot of these mangakas started making self-published works of popular comic series. And so, you know, we now know them as parody works, right? And so... Uh, yeah, even with hentai, like it originally started as, I mean, parody just dominated the scene of doujinshi, right? And it also, I mean, to the point where like doujinshi manga almost became synonymous with uh, hentai. Hentai of existing characters, like parody hentai became synonymous for doujinshi. But uh, actually, it's not true. Yeah, um, doujinshi is just something that is uh, self-published. So an author creates the work on their own dime, their own time. They don't get paid in creating the work. They only get paid after they sell it. So here's the um, major separation between commercial manga and um, doujinshi. With commercial manga, authors are paid. Also, 
I'll get up. I should probably cover like the different ways mangaka get paid. Yeah, I think that's a good conversation to educate people. So um, this actually ties in a lot with piracy. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because the whole exposure argument doesn't mean shit uh, when you actually know how authors make money. Anyway, um, there's usually uh, four ways. Yeah, four ways. Um, oh, well, actually, like three ways for um, uh, mangaka to make money. First of all is the per page rate. The next is the tankobon sales. And finally, the rights sales. So uh, the per page rate is pretty much the agreement a manga author has with a publisher. So, you know, like let's say Weekly Shonen Jump, you know, that's like what, like 20 pages an episode? 20 pages an episode and, you know, uh, the manga publisher is like, okay, yo, we're going to give you like X amount of money per page. So, uh, I mean, honestly, when you're, a, when you're starting out as a bottom tier mangaka, that's like 30 pages per day, uh, 30 pages per, per page, $30 per page. $30 per page, $50 per page. If you're good, maybe $100 per page. Yeah. Still, honestly, not enough considering the amount of hours that can go into drawing just one page. But, yeah. Hey, guys, it's me. Um, I'm just coming in to interrupt the show here for just a second to unfortunately lay down some bad news and to let you know that uh, I had to cut out the next close to three minutes of this interview just because uh and uh i originally thought it was just uh uh his connection through skype but uh i guess uh uh on's uh headset i'm not sure if he was adjusting it or if his connection just got kind of just got worse or something but uh the the, the next couple of minutes uh, where On is uh, talking to us about, uh, you know, different pay rates for manga and whatnot, uh, unfortunately start to get really staticky to the point where uh, even after I cleaned him up as best as I could, um, he still couldn't really make out what he said too much. And even if you could, like, there's just so much constant static for like three minutes that I didn't really think uh, anybody would want to listen to that. So uh, I cut it out so that way it wouldn't like you know uh make you guys uncomfortable to listen to but um you know essentially on was just talking to us about uh the different uh page rates uh whether it be like weekly or monthly for different mangaka and whatnot and basically how for a mangaka that that that's like the most financially secure as they are uh in their career is during serialization uh, at least as compared to Tonkoban sales, or their, the volume sales, I should say, um, where apparently, according to On, um, most magaka in the industry receive only, like, one-digit percent royalties. So, like, for example, like, some some authors may only receive, like, four or six percent uh, royalties for their, uh, uh, for their book sales, because a lot of that money has to go back to uh, the publisher... For actually like distribution and printing and whatnot, um, which I guess makes sense, but still is unfortunate. Um, and and that's basically like what he talked about for uh, for that portion of the podcast that I unfortunately couldn't recover. The rest of the like the rest of this interview should be good. Um, I kind of quickly skimmed through it here just to make sure there weren't any like really big technical screw ups and. Um, no, 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 there should be no more, like, long bouts of static after this. I think there might be one or two, like, here or there, but, like, 
nothing too disruptive. Like, I again, I, I really didn't think you guys would want to listen to, like, three straight minutes of that, so I, I basically had to cut this section out, but I... But I didn't want to completely lose like what Olin was uh, trying to talk to us about because I did think it was uh, some really in- uh, interesting info. Um, but no, yeah, um, I guess we can go back to the interview. And finally, the last part is uh, right sales. So the author gets a uh, author, uh, and here's the funny thing: like, oh, um, in Japan, Japan doesn't really have a system of revenue sharing. Yeah. Revenue sharing only applies for Tankobot sales. When it comes to rights sales, uh, you have to sell it, you know, um, you have to sell the rights in whole. So if you sell your rights for a cheap price at the very beginning, right, and then it turns out that your manga becomes a super mega hit, right, that merchandise money isn't coming your way. Oh man, I've, this is a very important thing to note because I think a lot of people might have misconception that buying merchandise of a franchise might have the, those profits work their way back to the original author, but that's really not the case when it comes to like merchandise sales of all these other properties that aren't the manga itself. Yeah, and especially like uh, when you're um, you know, when you work for like a big publisher, sometimes the publisher has the merchandising brand within their own company, right? So, uh, I mean, I won't name any names, but like maybe X publisher also has a merchandising subsidiary within the company, right? So when an artist is reliant on said publisher for their per page rate and their Tankobon revenue royalties. And that same publisher then approaches them and says, Hey man, uh, we want you to sell us the rights for merchandising, to turn it into an anime, to turn it into a live-action film. How does X price sound? It's very difficult for an author to say, Actually, I want more. You get what I mean? Yeah, it's like... Yeah, so um, often a lot of authors end up selling the rights very early on in their career. Especially for big, big, big publishers, yeah. And then you know sometimes it's sometimes it's really, really cheap. Like um, oh that uh that author uh Shuzo Sato um for say hello to Blackjack, right? He has another series called uh Umizaru, which was turned into a live action TV drama. The first season one, he got paid like nothing, or maybe like I don't know, like ten thousand dollars or something. Like it wasn't much money at all the licensing to use his works as a TV series. Yeah. But that became an absolute mega hit TV series in Japan. Yeah. So when they uh, went for like a second movie, he was then able to like negotiate like an amount that was like 30 or 40 times more than what he first got. Wow. So like, I think the first time was like $10,000. Second time he got like $400,000, you know? Yeah. So that was kind of pretty lucky now but you know like the recent trend right it's very difficult for works to get a sequel a second season there are so many anime right that had one season and they stopped Mm -hmm. yeah and so that's that's kind of like a big problem at the moment it's like authors like sell their rights for a cheap price and okay like first we have to go back to like why do authors sell rights if they can't get much money. Like, they're hoping for a trickle-down effect, right? When authors, like, agree for their works to be, uh, to, for it to have an anime adaptation, for it to have a, um, a film adaptation, what they're praying for 
is for people to then buy the books. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know, like, oh, like recently the, the Witcher Netflix series. People watched The Witcher and they thought, oh man, now I got to play the game. Oh, now I got to read the books, right? And, um, you know, like The Witcher had the same problem too. Like the, the author sold the rights to The Witcher to CD Projekt Red for, I think, like a very low price. Like it was, it was a steal. And now, like The Witcher Three, like blown it up into you know, like it's 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 a legendary game, right? And then the author was kind of like pissed off, like you know that he wasn't actually he he felt like um he wasn't paid the he was kind of jealous yeah. that um you know that it increased in value, and I think his son was going through like medical treatment, and he really needed the money, so you know he you know he that's why he was like pushing for it really hard back then. I heard, yeah, yeah, I mean. It's kind of a heartbreaking exploratory process that, like, even in with Western comics creators or artists, writers, like, if they sell their IP rights, you know, you know, they often will not receive those trickle down profits too. And so you will have creators like very popular characters or franchises, you know, struggling financially still because they're not, they didn't receive like a dime of like the profits like these blockbuster films are making. Because they aren't getting royalties in their from their contract. Like I know, I know Dojin authors who um, uh, make less money than I do, and I am their translator. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that's that's the kind of uh, yeah. There are there are problems like that. Yeah, and yeah. So the whole like trickle down thing, like people expect you know these authors like when they sell these rights early on. You know, they think um people are gonna watch the anime, watch the film, and then maybe hopefully buy the books. Uh, and this is the problem with the piracy. Like people don't buy the books, and uh, yeah, like that's it. Authors get paid per page, and then they get paid for Tankobon sales, right? If the only data you pull up is like how many books, um, uh, what's that new anime that everyone's raving about? The the one with the girl with like the pipe in her mouth. Demon Slayer. Yeah, I mean Demon Slayer blew up, so the manga sales for that are definitely uh, going. Every, every every now and then, like, some guy on Twitter, like, oh, yeah, Demon Slayer sells, like, X volumes. Like, One Piece sells X volumes. It's like, <laughs> that's good. Like, you're picking, like, the two highest-selling mangas of, like, all time. And then, yeah, those authors are rolling in money. You know, I heard stories of, like, um, I heard stories of, uh, of like, mangaka, like, very successful Shonen Jump mangaka. Like walking into a Ferrari dealer <laughs> and buying the car in cash. Wow! Like the dude literally opens up a suitcase because, like, a lot of a lot of the manga are often like socially awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, he shows up in like very casual clothes, and the and the dealer, the woman at the dealer is like, "Um, sir, are you at the right establishment?" He's like, "Yes." Like, uh, I want to buy a Ferrari. It's like, how much is it? And she's like, oh, it's going to cost you like $300,000. She's like, oh, okay, yeah, please wait a moment. <laughs> Goes to the bank, comes back with like bags of money. It's like, okay, I want to buy the car. You know, it's like, yeah, there are some mangakas who can do that. Right. But most mangaka are not selling millions of books a year and they aren't receiving profits of that extreme. Yeah. It's like, um, like with this, through this like job at Iridori Comics, like I get to meet and, you know, become, you know, really close uh, friends with like a lot of doujinshi authors. And like, we always talk about like, you know, we're always on the phone like every day. And like, they tell me about their lives. And it's like, some of them are doing okay. Um, of course, like some of our, you know, superstar sellers are doing well. But, you know, there are a lot of authors who don't do well. 
and they're living like just above the poverty line. Some of them live on the poverty line. And, you know, this is for doujinshi, but like commercial manga, like commercial manga is even worse. Um, at the moment, like, I mean, especially with um, uh, hentai, like a lot of authors are just ditching commercial work because, um, you know, commercial manga, like, you know, they they don't pay that well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, sometimes they get $50 per page, $70 per page. Yeah, and 20 pages takes 20 pages? You have to work all week with barely any sleep to get that done. And you have to do that every week for 47 weeks a year at least. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot a lot of hentai manga is, like, you know, like, monthly, yeah. But even monthly, that's still a lot. And you can't earn... That's, like you mentioned before, like, at whatever rate you're getting for 20 pages isn't going to be enough to support your income when you factor in expenses. Exactly, yeah. And um, most of... Okay, it, it takes an author, like, roughly a month. If they're quick, they can get um, maybe 30 pages in a month. If they're slow, a month and a half, maybe even two months. Like, I know authors who take, like, three months to draw 30 pages. And the problem with, like... Oh, the thing is, I don't want to call that a problem because it's, like, a different... Commercial manga is, like, different industry to doujinshi. But one of the um, obstacles, I'd say, of commercial manga is that you don't make your own work. Uh, you have an editor, and the editor is extremely powerful, right? So your work doesn't get published unless the editor gives his or her approval, right? And so, like, that's why, like, in manga, like, you start off with this thing called a name, which is, like, uh, the, the draft, right? It's, like, a really, like, you know, outline sketch of, like, storyboard kind of thing, very bare-bones stuff. And then you pitch it to your editor, and the editor is like, oh, yeah, okay, sounds good, let's go with it, yeah. And then you start drawing. You actually start drawing, yeah. And coming up with a name can take, like, a couple of days, maybe even a week, right? And after that, you actually draw your characters and so on. But at any point in time, the editor can actually tell you to change it. And, of course, like, uh, politics is involved. There's a lot of uh, office politics. Like, for example, let's say, um, uh, let's say uh, shoujo manga. Come February, a lot of the topic is going to be Valentine's Day. So a lot of uh, shoujo series are going to try to have a Valentine's-themed episode in their story. But as a magazine, let's say like there's some sort of like shoujo magazine with like 10 different, like a Shonen Jump version of shoujo, right? If, you know, that kind of magazine is out there, right? You can't have every single story that month to be about Valentine's Day, right? There's got to there's gotta be some balance, right? And so that's where the office politics comes into play, yeah. So uh, let's say like a manga author A is like, all right, like, okay, next month is February, so I'm going to start preparing my Valentine's Day story. And you have this like idea in your mind and then you like, you're, you're drawing your drafts and so on. And then when you go meet your editors, like, all right, next month is February, and uh, here are my plans for a Valentine's Day story. And then the editor goes, oh, uh, sorry, uh, you can't do that. You're a, you're a newbie mangaka. Uh, and like uh, Mr. X is like a veteran in the industry, you know, like a very top, top class editor. Like uh, uh, next month, only, only Mr. X's artists are allowed to do Valentine's Day episodes. Everybody else has to do non-Valentine's Day related episodes. 
those are the kind of rules that mangaka have to work with. So suddenly, like, this author's like, oh, wait, but I just spent, like, I just lost a week thinking about this Valentine's Day story. And they're like, yeah, tough cookie. Like, all right, make it uh, not Valentine's Day related. And so they quickly kind of have to, like, come up with, ah, mom, 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 like some sort of, like, you know, something else, right? And then um, the fans obviously don't know it, don't know about the office politics. So, like, on Twitter, they're like, what the hell? It's like, it's such a missed opportunity. Like, why didn't so-and-so do, uh, you know, incorporate Valentine's into this story? It would have been perfect for character building for, like, the two, you know, the main love interest, blah, blah, blah. And most of the time, there's a lot of politics in play as to why a certain manga series takes a certain direction or does a certain arc. Or in the case of Bleach, like multiple arcs. <laughs> oh, yeah. People don't really consider the behind the scenes of manga making enough. And especially considering the amount of labor and time that goes into making uh, the comics that they're reading because people process what they're reading so quickly they don't really consider that what you just read in five minutes was like a week's worth of work if not more and that's more than just a eight-hour workday that could be like a 16-hour workday that these artists are putting oh, in to yeah. draw this 19-page comic that you just read in five minutes yeah, like often like the last three days before um a work goes live like artists don't even sleep yeah so, I mean, that's why it's so important to support the official manga release. And I'm glad that we kind of went over, like, how artists are actually getting paid for manga. To emphasize that if you want to support a series, support one of your favorite comics, you need to purchase the original comic. Because that's the only way that you're actually going to be able to send any financial support to these artists. And most of these artists aren't shonen jump authors that are selling millions of copies uh, and are getting a huge profits. Like, they're just barely making ends meet. So it's very important to support the artists and comics you love. And I think what's great about Irodori, especially since you mentioned that Jujinji are made on artists' own time, on their own resources, that if you want to see more of a Dojinji work, you need to purchase that work directly. And that's especially true of erotic hentai comics. And that's uh, what's really great about Irodori bringing out non-erotic uh, comics, non-erotic Dojinji, and having there be a way for fans to read and support these works themselves, which I think is really, really cool. And uh, hopefully, like, by supporting these works and purchasing them, you know, that could allow the artists to have the resources to create more of the stories, which I think would be pretty awesome. Like, um, what I said before with, um, in regards to, like, piracy and scans, right? like, if you really love a, like, hmm, it's kind of hard to say, but, like, often, like, when the whole, like, scanlation discourse, like, on Twitter and online, like, there are people who, there, okay, first of all, there are always going to pe- be people who will never pay for manga. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there are, there are people, um, who just believe that it's, like, a God-given right that they get to consume manga and anime for free. You know, like, it's a very, like, racist thing. It's this, like, old, like, Orientalism way of thinking. It's like, hey, yellow monkey from the east, like, make some artwork for me, you know. It's this, yeah, I I, I straight up think it's, um, you know, very uh, racist to think. Yeah. We mentioned on an earlier episode, I think it was our piracy episode, that uh, it's very telling that what it took for people to start talking about Manga Rock in particular again was uh, 
somebody up uh, was them basically stealing another webcomic. Yeah, a creator who could express their frustrations in English. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, look, like, taking advantage of a Japanese author's lack of ability to file a DMCA, right? And here's the thing, like, filing a DMCA is not easy, right? Because you have to put all of your personal information out in the open, right? Especially, like, when it comes to hentai, a lot of authors don't want their personal information out in the open. Even, not just hentai, but normal manga as well. You know, like, for example, if you're the author of One Piece, yeah, sure, like, you know, yeah, you're beloved. But, like, you know, if you're the author of a problematic manga or something, society will shit on you, right? Yeah. And um, not, not everybody will um, treat you well. And this is not just society, but even within families, right? Like at Irodori Comics, we have artists who tell us like, hey, like, um, I keep my work a secret to my family. So when you send my paycheck, could you please not write hentai doujinshi? Like, could you please like write it as something different, you know? A like, euphemism. yeah, we have, yeah, yeah, we have uh, situations like that. Um, not a lot of mangaka ever really speak up about the fact that they are a mangaka, right? And especially in the case of, um, especially now, like, we have this doxing culture. Imagine if, like, I don't know, the the author of One Piece was to file a DMCA, right? And then the piracy site that receives that DMCA go, yo, it's like, hey, Ichiro Oda lives here, right? Next thing you know, you have, like, a million weebs in front of his house every day, right? So there's a lot of privacy and, like, circumstance where, like, yeah, sure, like, a lot of manga authors want to do a DMCA, but at the same time, they don't want to. They don't want to, you know, put open their their private residential address because, you know, as I said before, like a lot of mangakas are barely making ends meet. So that means most of the time their office is their home. Yeah. So when they file a DMCA, they're like, "Hey, yo, guys, like this is my residential address. This is my phone number. This is my email. This is my full name." And so taking advantage of that. Taking advantage of somebody not being able to file an official complaint, that's really shitty. It's like, you know, it's like being that one fucking, you know, like, six, it's like being like Harvey Weinstein, you know? It's like, oh yeah, these young actresses, like, you know, if they speak up against me, like, their careers are over, so I can keep raping people. You know, it's like, it's the same mentality. Like, hey, these Japanese authors, um, they're not going to be able to speak against us, so uh, let's just keep doing what we do. And yeah. But, um, you know, like, uh, you know, this analogy is uh, probably going to get me in trouble because uh, you shouldn't compare rape with manga. But, you know, uh, this, this whole like this whole like consent thing, I think, is very, um, very uh, similar. It's like uh, it's very interesting how the word consent uh, when it comes to uh, an artistic creator's right suddenly becomes this very like um, flexible thing. Right. Yeah. Certainly these scanlators are not getting the permission from the artists to translate their works, nor are they paying the artists for the works that they are translating. So, you know, it's they are like basically kind of stealing and distributing their works without their consent. So that is something you have to think about. Even that author uh, with the whole manga rock thing blew up. Um, I think she already put her work on some free free viewing platform. Yeah, but that was yeah. of her choosing. Yeah, right. Yeah, that doesn't give manga rock the right to then. Oh, like oh, it's available for free on this website. Though, therefore, it must be available for free on our website too. 
you know, like that, that, that. It doesn't work that way. You know, you still gotta ask for consent. You know, and obviously the author did not give her consent, and so it's a really shitty thing to do. And at the end of the day, right? We talk about exposure, but um, you know, for a starving artist, for a mangaka that's barely making ends meet, like. You can't eat exposure. Exactly. Exposure doesn't <laughs> exposure doesn't pay your rent, right? And exposure in the Western market doesn't convert to Japanese yen. Especially if there's not a way for people internationally to purchase your work, like officially in a language they'll read. Like, and that that's the thing. Like, I mean, look, it's gonna cost you a lot of money, and a lot of people are gonna get angry. But at the end of the day, like, if you really want to support an artist and you read scans like that's fine if you read scans buy the japanese books Mm -hmm. like amazon does international shipping like you know there's like book walker and i don't know like a lot of different websites where you can buy the digital versions of the japanese work right buying the okay here's the truth buying the digital version of a work gives the author more royalties than buying the english version yeah, less hmm. costs are go into the digital version because you don't have to consider all the printing costs. Right. And remember that um uh single digit um royalty rates we talked about in the Tango Bond sales? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When a work gets localized, guess whose royalties go uh become smaller? The uh artist, the original artist. Yeah, because the Japanese publisher is not gonna budge. You know? <laughs> yeah. They're like, uh, yeah, okay, so, you know, uh, let's say, for example, the Japanese publisher gets, like, mm, 60% of royalties for a Tankobon sale in Japan. Just because it goes overseas, they're not going to give up on the 60. They're going to be like, okay, hey, Yen Press, like, okay, uh, we're going to keep 60, Yen Press, you guys keep the rest. And then, uh, all right, uh, I guess we can, like, you know, we can uh, decrease the author's royalties and uh, pass it off as localization costs or something. Right, so, like, I don't know, maybe, like, a Maybe an English Tankobon sale, maybe a Tankobon sale in Japan, maybe an author could be getting like 6% when the English version is then sold. Maybe the author gets like 3%. So uh, actually, if you do read scans, and if you're one of those purist guys, like, oh yeah, like um, the official scanlation, Zolo, Zolo sucks, right? Hey man, like, okay, like, read, continue reading your Zoro. <laughs> but buy it in Japanese. Yeah, then then go buy the Japanese digital version because... Bang for buck, that will give a lot more royalties to the author. And so, like, it's kind of it's kind of a weird situation. And regarding doujinshi, right? So, remember in commercial manga, like, you got single-digit royalties? When a Japanese doujinshi author sells their work, guess how much royalty they get? Well, I'm imagining it's a lot more in the double digits. Yeah, around 70%. Yeah, that's a significant difference more. So, if you're buying some of Iridori stuff uh, off of uh, Faku or Amazon, like, you better keep in mind that, you know, that what you're paying for, you know, it might seem a little more expensive for, like, short amount of pages, but more of what you are paying is going back to the original artist and helping them pay their bills and continue making their work. Yeah, so, like, I mean, I mean, it's kind of almost sounds like a sales pitch, but, um, <laughs> like, in our case, like, look, uh... Irodori comics, um, the royalties we pay our authors are still a hell of a lot more than commercial artists will ever get in terms of percentage rate, right? We pay double digits and very high double digits royalties to authors. So yeah, it's like every dollar you spend, you know, a big chunk of it goes to the artist directly. So that's kind of um, a very important thing 
that we're all trying to do. Yeah, and so that's the thing. And here's the very interesting thing about scanlation. Um, uh, a scanlation. Um, often with people who access um, you know, piracy sites. Uh, it's very unfortunate, and I I don't mean to shit on Crunchyroll or Faku at all, but in the case of Western the the Western market, a lot of the companies that exist today were originally scanlation groups or um, what you call it, like uh, like Faku was Faku was like a hosting site. Before it turned legit, same as Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll was like wasn't exactly uh, legal, and then they turned legal. They all start somewhere, but unfortunately for Faku and um, Crunchyroll, like there's always going to be this group of people who, you know, like who think like, oh, Faku betrayed us. Like uh, Crunchyroll betrayed us. They they sold out. They sold out, and they're they're making money now. You know. Like the fandom's passion project has been turned into corporate stooges and translators who don't love the work are translating it. So the translation is not natural. Like there's a lot of political agendas into the subs, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And it's really unfortunate because uh, the legal option, like they are our legal option to read, uh, to consume uh, hentai in English, to consume anime in English. So there's always like this group of... um people who will justify whatever reason to not buy the legal option and uh you know in the case of manga plus like the whole like oh yeah zolo is spelt with the l so therefore i am never going to uh read the official versions it's like people can come up with a million reasons not to buy the official re- uh, official releases but the the piracy really really does hurt because um when it comes to especially like you know publishing for foreign releases right if a work is so popular overseas, doing the rounds on scans, a Japanese publisher can interpret that as two different ways. One is like, okay, it's popular. If we release it in English, it might sell. The other interpretation is, oh, damn, this work is already popular. So even if we localize it now, it's probably not going to sell. And for the case of a, little, a lot of obscure mangas, like the latter is a lot more common. And I'm not even joking. Like, uh, I've heard stories from, like, publishers of how, like, like some French publishers would talk to um, Japanese publishers. That, oh, yeah, like, volume one to volume three is already available on Scanlation websites in French. So we only want to license from volume four and after. My gosh. Yeah, like, how crazy is that? So, like, if you want to collect the physical versions of this manga series, like, you can't get your hands on one, two, three in French. You can only get like four, five, six, seven. Like that's crazy, right? But like all of these different um publishers, you know, they have to recuperate their costs, and so that means like in order to do so, like they're gonna have to cut ventures that are that aren't financially feasible. So a lot of the ways they often like gauge whether something is going to you know be worth it financially is to check how popular is it. Uh, how popular it is on scanlation websites it's like oh damn like this work has a million views like and uh you know judging from the comments you know a lot of people are saying hey oh thank thank you manga rock for this free manga so you know okay this guy is never gonna buy it never gonna you know go for the paid option right and if a lot of these comments are like oh thank you for reading it for free blah 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 blah, blah then a lot of publishers are like eh, you know fuck it like we're just not gonna bother publishing this series Right, which then turns into this whole catch twenty two thing, right? Because scanlation groups are like, oh, like publishers aren't releasing this work, so therefore we must, 
you know, uh, publish this work. And it always becomes this like endless cycle of like, <sighs> like things that could have been avoided. Yeah, I mean, if we haven't made it clear at this point to everyone listening, please support artists. If you like a comic, please purchase the comic, support the artist. Because if you're not doing that, then like most artists are starving artists. They are struggling. So any support that goes directly to them is very valuable. And like reading a comic for free uh, through an illegal channel, you're not helping the artists. You're actively hurting them and their ability to keep creating the comics you love. No, exactly. And and that's why that's why it's a good thing that uh, Iridori Comics exists. Uh, I really I really think this new I, I really I really do think that like the, the work that you guys do, especially on the Dojinchi front, is really gonna help. And uh you know just just, just from just from reading, you know, uh, what you guys have put out so far from the Aqua line, like, I think you guys are doing really good work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I actually, I think, I think with that, we should probably start wrapping up soon. Uh, I think that might be a good note to end on. We, I mean, we, we could talk about, we, we had a lot of other stuff we wanted to talk about, but I, I think, uh, I think our time's kind of running short here. Yeah, we'd love to have on on again to talk about more topics because, you know, this has been an awesome conversation. Like, I think we really dug in deep. Like, your career history is really fascinating. And also, I really appreciate, like, this is kind of a follow-up to our piracy discussion going, like, even deeper into, like, how piracy is directly financially hurting artists. So I thought this was a really awesome conversation to have. I mean, like, in the topic of piracy, like, there's one thing, like, people have to remember, like, you know, because Dojinshi is self-published, Often with the whole like piracy of like commercial manga, like I've seen a lot of this on like you know uh, places like um like Reddit and um Twitter and so on, where people are like, oh yeah, like I pirate because publishers are greedy. It's like I don't want my money to go to greedy publishers. Like that's why I read scans and then I support the artist by m- buying merch, like watching his anime, watching his film. It's like yeah, it's like but as we are told about the whole like the rights issues, like none of that money goes to the author and so one of the worst things you can do uh to an author is to tweet at them right (laughs) like oh my god like um i think it was the uh the author of fairy tale i think Um, yeah yeah when he went to uh, america for a convention and everyone read the scans so they were up to date uh with the newest chapter right but the tankobon was supposed to come a lot after so right so Hiro Mashima was under the impression that um uh, the American fans didn't know but when they all started like you know when they would come up to him and say oh man I love what's going on with the latest chapter blah 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 he was so sad so pissed off that everyone was like all of these people out here like cosplaying it looks cool but he's like wow like none of them buy my books like I have hundreds of people here cosplaying telling me I'm awesome but they just read scans and that 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 feeling that feeling is soul crushing for a lot of artists and you know we have a lot of artists too who have gone through the same thing yeah so remember guys please be considered of you know artists and respectful of the hard work they're putting into because like piracy hurts them not just financially but also you know it hurts like their trust in fans, international fans, and their willingness to 
you know, work with legal channels to get their works out there. So uh, the da- the effects of piracy are widespread and damaging. But again, that's why uh, we really appreciate what Iridori is doing with publishing Dujinshi of both the erotic and now the non-erotic variety. And where can people find Iridori comics and their your works uh, just online and support uh, artists and their works like directly? Oh, uh, well, um, yeah, you can follow us on Twitter, Iridori Comics, at Iridori Comics. Um, but no, uh, with our erotic doujinshi lineup, uh, they're all available on uh, Faku. Uh, Faku, um, yeah, Faku is a great uh, distributor. Um, you know, we share the same vision of providing, you know, legal avenues for people to buy and support the hentai author that they love. So, yeah, uh, you can buy our um, erotic lineup on uh, Faku. Um, we're also in talks with, like, other places to distribute it on separate websites as well. Yeah, but uh, that'll, that'll be, like, a bit more later in the year. Yeah, and uh, as far as our non-H, uh, non-erotic lineup, um, you know, some of the works that you guys reviewed and covered, um, they're currently available on Amazon, Amazon Kindle. And, uh, oh, January January 15th, uh, they're going to be available on uh, Comixology. So definitely by the time this podcast is out, uh, you'll be able to buy basically all the titles that we've reviewed on all-comic.com on Comixology, so... Right, I think the first full for sure, yeah. Like, um, Comixology is like a review process is like kind of slow compared to Amazon, yeah. So like, we uh, there's like a bit of a delay between each um, batch of releases, but I mean, yeah, we'll constantly like upload things on um, Comixology as well, yeah. And um, uh, yeah, we're also looking at many different um avenues to release um our works. Um, Faku has a uh imprint called um Dempa, yeah, Dempa, which is uh going to be their non non H uh works. So they did like uh, Inside Mari and uh, Kaiji and yep. so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dempa, Dempa is going to have its own um, distribution platform soon. So yeah, um, our works will be available on that as well. Excellent. Ooh, that's cool. That's cool. And where can people find you online to hear like more conversations about translation, about piracy, and just to keep up with what you're doing in general? Um, oh, um, uh, what is my Twitter handle? I think it's like at on takahashi or something yeah I, I just have the same display picture of like this like black uh like face kind of thing um <laughs> yeah just look out for that <laughs> uh yeah but uh i just just um yeah i just want to warn people like i make posts about the industry you know both video games and manga and so on so like you know recently there's been a increase in followers but like I retweet a lot of hentai stuff, so uh, <laughs> if you want to, yeah, it's like um, if you guys want to keep your, um, you know, like Twitter feed uh, relatively safe for work, um, I yeah, kind of recommend, um, you know, yeah. maybe think think twice before you follow. Yeah, it's not safe for work. Uh, Eighteen plus Twitter account for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Luckily, most of uh, our audience are adults, but uh, yeah, keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're if you, like you're following somebody who is in charge of uh, bringing over a hentai doujinshi, like I'm, like you could go figure. Yeah, and Iridori has brought over a lot in the past year. I remember I looked through the archives of what you've done, uh, oh, just a, few, a while ago, and it's like you published like uh, fifty different doujins last year. So uh, your guys are very prolific as well. Yeah, we're um we're kicking up the ante. Uh, February next month, uh, we're releasing thirty nine doujins. Wow, in a month. wow, that's yeah. insane. 
that's incredible it's insane yeah like (laughs) our editors are well like we don't have many translators um so each of us are translating like eight works like oh ed you know um ed ed is a machine he's he's translating like 11 or 12 works in february wow yeah that's a lot of work crazy yeah and and he has a day job as well i mean all of us have a day job yeah so we're all doing itadori on the side which is um kind of um another interesting thing but yeah i think i have like eight or nine works to translate in february and whew, yeah but uh everything you read on itadori aqua is all ed mm-hmm. mm, wow yeah uh he he's kind of, he's uh, i mean he's kind of uh he kind of wants to take a step back from uh hentai yeah, and it, it's always been his dream to translate um non-erotic manga, non-erotic doujinshi. Yeah, so like, you know, um, when, at uh, last year, you know, when we pitched the idea, hey, like, why don't we start doing um, you know, because our motto is um doujinshi for everybody, and one of the you know one of the best ways to like uh, you know, there's this misconception that doujinshi equals hentai manga, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the best ways to like you know break that misconception is to actually start releasing non-erotic doujinshi. So when we started that, Ed was like, yo, I want to do everything. <laughs> so, like, I, I'm, I'm not even allowed to touch the uh, non-erotic side of the business. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, because like, I'm Japanese and, you know, like, I, I, I talk to the artists. Ed's like, hey, on, like, go get some new artists, but you're not translating them. I'm like, all right, uh, I'll go get the artists. Uh, you translate them, sure, sure. <laughs> Well, he's doing a great job, and you, Iridor as a whole, are doing a great job, and I'm really looking forward to all the new works that you'll be publishing this year. Yeah, thank you. There's a lot more. Um, I mean, in terms of, like, things to come up, uh, things coming, like, um, yeah, uh, we're actually working on uh, Boys Love and Yuri. Nice. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, like, our motto is Dojinshi for everybody, so we're trying to hit, like, you know, we're trying to make sure, like, we really do bring everything uh, for everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, we're bringing, um, there's a a lot of Yuri, uh, yeah, more Yuri than BL actually, but a lot of Yuri on the way. Uh, BL, um, non non H, uh, non erotic doujinshi. Uh, and in terms of like H doujinshi, like we're we're doing a a lot of uh, different genres that we like. You know, last year we focused a lot on like romance and uh, lovey dovey stuff that a lot of the Faku audience enjoy. But uh, this year we're focusing, well, not focusing, but we're also doing a lot of um, you know, like risky uh. Uh, genres that you know people outside of Faku tend to enjoy as well so we hope you know we can really deliver on different things yeah oh yeah um well, we'll definitely be leaving links to uh all these different re- releases in the show notes and uh once again thank you so much for coming on the show we'll we'll definitely have to have you on again sometime because clearly we we will not run out of things to talk about <laughs> yeah, um, i think um you know even that whole five hours thing doesn't sound uh <laughs> like uh it doesn't sound <laughs> unrealistic now not yeah. at all <laughs> no not at all um but we'll we'll definitely have you on again at some point in the future Maybe even the talk about that uh, that blackjack series. You got me really interested in uh, reading it now that I now that I know it's actually in, in English and available. But uh, all right, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna end our conversation there again. Uh, thank you for coming on, and we'll definitely have you on again in the future. But uh, Lum, I think we should just uh, wrap up the rest of the show. All right. Uh, we we want to give a special thanks to Mr. On Takahashi for coming on the show. 
it was a very, very lengthy, but very, very fun discussion. Like, I don't know if we mentioned it during the interview itself. We may or may not have. I don't remember at this point. But unfortunately, like, we only had so much time to talk about him because, like, there was so much that we wanted to talk to him about. And fortunately and unfortunately for us, Owen had just so much to talk about that we we didn't even get to, like, half the questions, I think, that we wanted to ask him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we could have hours upon hours of more conversations with Ohm Takashi because there's quite a lot to talk about and that he has a very fascinating perspective about. Very clearly, we need to have him on the next time we talk about uh, piracy again. Oh, most definitely. I almost feel like at some point uh, the episode was turning into uh, the state of manga piracy 2020. It actually was. At a certain point, you could definitely consider this our follow-up to that episode. With some very valuable and great points being brought up that we didn't bring up last time from a publisher's perspective, from someone who, like, really works with artists and, like, knows the ins and outs of, like, how artists actually are compensated. So that was a really valuable and important and interesting piece of information and perspective to learn about. Mm-hmm, but... Speaking of those artists, so a big reason we wanted to have on on was to basically talk about the Iridori Comics Aqua line, which we mentioned at the top of the show is a is basically is a line of non-erotic doujinshi. We didn't really get a chance at all to talk about like how we felt about some of these comics because we, I mean, Lum, I know you've basically read all those and have done reviews for them on all comic at this point, which we'll leave links to those in the show notes for anyone who uh, may or may not have read those yet. I had a chance to read those before we recorded that interview, and uh, I have to say, I don't typically read a lot of uh, non-erotic doujinshi, but uh, I will say that uh, out of all the comics in this line, like, all the comics in this line so far, I, I actually really enjoyed. Most of them are, like, romantic comics, such as a love letter for my love then and now, and uh, of girls love and money, and uh, two timing fair and square. Like I know all all those are like uh, romance titles in particular. Uh, Raincoat Kids is more of a I don't know what you would call it, not cerebral, but it's a kind of a surreal comic. You could surreal, say. yeah. It's it's like a surreal like children's book almost. Yeah, it got a dark edge to it too. It delves in a little bit towards the end to some potential psychological territory, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, I will say, like, as much as I liked, I liked all the comics in this line, but Rainco Kids, like, I desperately need more of this. Like, I really want to see where that goes. And so, yeah, uh, we, again, we, uh, I think we're kind of running low on time here for the rest of the show, so we don't have as much time to talk about these as much as we want to, but... We will say that these comics are worth checking out and are worth reading. And uh, if you want to buy these comics, they're basically available on Amazon Kindle and Comixology. You know, you can basically buy all of these digitally for $4.99. I know that might be a bit for, like, how short some of these can be. Well, we went over it in the discussion proper that more percentage of that income goes back directly to the artists. On yeah. put it, it was about 70% return for the artists. Mm-hmm, so. Yeah, yeah. I was I was I was gonna say, yeah, more money from your purchases will go back to these artists, which at the end of the day, 
it's a good thing, obviously. You should pay your artists and whatnot. Enough of me being redundant, but yeah, no, like, like again, like I said, all these were pretty great. I enjoyed reading all of them. And so, yeah, uh, we, we will leave links to where you can buy all these in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And for my thoughts on the Yuridori Comics line, you can read my reviews that I wrote for allcomic.com, which should also be linked in the show notes. Yes, yes, we'll definitely be linking those as well. If you have not read those, I don't think I've read all of them, but I did I did read some of them. I, 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 enjoyed, I enjoyed giving them a read. I thought you had some interesting thoughts. Yeah, I enjoyed all of them, and they all do really interesting things. They really show off, like, the power of independent comics to explore ideas that may not usually be found in a traditional, like, magazine serialization format, and also experiment creatively in ways that you couldn't do through those means, especially in the case of Rinko Kids and the way that it is arranged in a horizontal format and reads left to right in like a Western comic style, which would be very difficult to do like in a magazine uh, setting. So like it really shows off like experimental ideas in a really awesome way. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially since the other three as well, like uh, Love Letter and Boat of Hiroyuki's, like those are all very you're interestingly designed to be suited for Twitter as a format. Like they are four page stories, like meant to be all fit in one tweet. So that was also very interesting. Like just the innovative aspect of like the, these comics are like really, really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm, for sure. But yeah, again, if you have any interest in checking out any of these titles, again, we will leave links in the show notes where you can buy them. But for now, before we kind of start wrapping up here, I do just want to kind of highlight two Twitter threads that uh, Owen has uh, written out here. Uh, one where he basically goes in the detail about like how mangaka like actually make their money back. Mostly whether it's through like volume sales or like, you know, through actually licensing their... Um, their series or IP or whatever to like to basically make like live action adaptations or anime and whatnot and uh, like how much money they actually make from stuff like that and uh, again as as someone who from from someone who actually works in the industry like a lot of that I thought was really interesting as well as a thread about recently how basically the shutdown of a lot of these uh, different piracy sites in Japan has has uh has led to a an increase in the Japanese digital comic market. On explains in his first tweet that the Japanese digital comic market has grown by 29.5% in 20 in 2019 and that the publishing industry grew by a point by a whopping 0.2%. And he basically in that thread in particular he basically goes through how compared to like the West and North America Basically, the idea of, like, you know, how, how piracy, like, helps sales and whatnot, which, you know, un- unfortunately is very rarely true and whatnot. So uh, I thought that was a really interesting thread as well. For anyone who wants to basically gain more info about how the industry works and how sales work, we will be leaving links to both those threads in the show notes. I thought they were very informative. Yeah, in general, you should follow Owen on Twitter, at Owen Takashi, because he does a lot of great threads that are very revealing and informative about the industry, and uh, I always learn a lot from them. 
Oh, for sure, for sure. And uh, again, we we cannot thank him enough for coming on the show. I cannot believe we had the CEO of a company on our podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, um, so this was a good episode. I apologize in advance if this turned out to be another long one, but again... Yeah, we yeah. have the survey results, guys. We know what you want, and <laughs> we will strive to make these shorter again in the future. Yeah. Uh, again, like like I said previously, we, we do have a few longer podcasts coming up just from the backlog of episodes that, you know, we meant to release earlier on last year, but just didn't get a chance to. So we do have some more long ones coming up. But w- once we run out of those, we are trying to come up with ways to try to shorten the show as much as we can here in certain parts. But I'm sure we'll talk way more about that and more on our next episode, which, uh, as Lum said, uh, we're going to be going over our our survey results and whatnot and uh, just kind of suss through the data and basically try to figure out how to make the show better, you know, just see what you guys want and just kind of reflect on on, on those results. And uh, before that, uh, we're also... We're also going to be talking about a lot of simulpubs next time as well. Uh, I mentioned what we're going to be talking about uh, Ashidaka of the Iron Steel. I think that was the title. I don't remember at this point. We're going to be talking about that along with uh, all the other uh, uh, other simulpubs from Shonen Jump, including Unlucky Undead, Mashal, as well as the, the Witch's Guardian. So... Yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about next episode, and so I I hope you guys look forward to it. And now, I think we're just going to end the show, and I think we're going to do that by plugging our stuff like normal. So, Lum, where can the people find you? You can find me at Lum Ramiyasha on Twitter, and anywhere there's a Lum Ramiyasha, that's where you can find me, like Anime Relation and Annie List. You can also read my reviews on all-comedy.com. I write manga reviews on there. I've been doing a lot of them lately, so check those out. There's a lot more books that got added to my pile recently, so definitely, definitely you'll be seeing a lot from me in February. All right, looking forward to it. Definitely go read all of Love's reviews again at all-comic.com. As for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I host a few other podcasts, or produce a few other podcasts, I, sh- I should say, which you can find links to over at uh, my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I also produce uh, Life Lessons in Gintama Cast, which is on a hiatus at the moment. Uh, One Podcast Prevails, which is a, basically a Detective Conan podcast, so if you're a fan of that, go listen to that. And, and a few others, I won't list them all here. Again, just go to my personal blog and uh, you'll find links to all of them there. And uh, as for Manga Mavericks and all comic and everything, so you want to basically go to all-comic.com. That's where we post uh, every episode of the podcast first, unless you are a subscriber to our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, if you sign up for that, you will have the chance to basically receive early access editions of certain portions of the podcast, at least depending on when we have them edited and whatnot so uh maybe hopefully if i get this podcast edited before we're supposed to put it out maybe i'll put it up on the patreon for you guys to listen to first again really depends on what we have edited but yeah no 
uh, sign up for that at the $2 tier or sign up for the $5 tier where you are more than guaranteed a bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, again, like I said, at the top of the show, we did a whole podcast talking about Kazuki Takahashi's The Comic, which was a seven chapter miniseries that ran in Weekly Shonen Jump two years ago at this point. And we had on Stefan Koza, who not only translated that, but also translates Jujutsu Kaisen for Shonen Jump as well. Again, if you sign up for the $5 tier, that's... Uh, you get to listen to us talk about that, as well as a few other bonus podcasts that we have recorded throughout the year for as long as we've been on Patreon. So please, please, please go support us on Patreon. It's the best place to support us if you want to. And then as for all comic, you can follow us on Facebook.com slash alt.comic or on Twitter.com slash comic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular, you want to follow us uh, on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com, where you can uh, basically find all the latest updates on the podcast, uh, especially on Twitter. You want to also subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mangamavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and whatnot, and uh, even some exclusive content every once in a while. So again, that's at youtube.com slash mangamavericks. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Do you have any questions for Mr. Om Takahashi about the industry, piracy, what have you? What do you think about some of the comics from the Iridori Comics Aqua line? What are you reading? Uh, what do you think about some of the news we talked about on this episode? Basically, just email us your thoughts on anything manga-related, podcast-related, etc., etc., and we'll, we'll read them on the show. We love getting emails. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Basically, you know, if you do that, you're uh, really helping us uh, gain visibility over there on that platform. And uh, leave us a five-star rating. But uh, that's really going to be about it for this episode. Uh, Again, thanks for listening. And uh, this has been episode 110 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on all-comic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 111. Bye, guys. Sayonara!